I'm here with Colin Marston, who is a stringed musician, multi-instrumentalist, producer, engineer, um, literally has been on every single album that's ever recorded by any band. Uh, pretty sure every musician is actually Colin Marston. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Colin. It's great to have you. I loved playing on uh, um, you know, Pyromania by um, Def Leppard and um, you know, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Those were great experiences. Yeah, and you're actually every single Beatle, so that's, that's impressive. I mean, uh, I don't even mention the Beatles because that's just obvious. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, the way that I always start this podcast is to just ask about uh, the guests' coffee preferences, their sort of coffee habits, uh, just how coffee fits into your life. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about metal, but uh, I always like to get this sort of lens on somebody. Oh, I love it. Yeah, get the coffee conversation out of the way first. So I hope I don't disappoint you, but <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll start with this. I love coffee, but I actually st basically stopped drinking it um, six or seven years ago. Um, yeah. and I switched to Yerba Mate. Oh, damn. And the uh, gourd and everything. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, ceramic cup, but, but yeah, I mean, with the, with the bombilla and yeah, that whole, that's, the, that, that's the thing. Yeah. The, the, the method of like actually just pouring the loose tea in and drinking it with the, the filter straw, um, is, uh, I don't know that it's like it takes into this other other category of a beverage for me, which it, it's like, yeah, I love tea, but it never could replace coffee for me. But for some reason, the interface, the, the method of this drink um, fills that void for me. And then also it's, you know, it's a lot less caffeine than coffee, but in terms of the amount of energy that it, I feel like it gives me, I feel like it's the same, if not more. Mm -hmm. with less caffeine and i don't get the um i don't get like the uh peaks and valleys of 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 coffee caffeine intake where you know you're super awake and then you kind of crash from it uh i feel like the 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 caffeine high so to speak from from mate is like way more even um so yeah so now it's like i still love coffee so i don't i don't drink it uh, regularly anymore and in the studio and at home and stuff but i do uh Whenever I travel and go on tour, I'm just back to coffee because there's no there's no way to find this in that form. It, even if you go to like a fancy coffee shop and you order mate, it doesn't come like this. It comes like in a little tea bag and it's like weak, pathetic, right. little nothing. Um, I think I saw so, on uh, you had a, an album that you showed me somewhere, and uh, in the show notes it said like basically like mate, not matcha. Um, I forget which one that was, but um. oh, it was something I uploaded to YouTube recently because I noticed mm -hmm. like I don't I don't ever comment on comments on YouTube, but I felt like a like a almost like a funnier, better way of acknowledging it was to just change in the actual video description and acknowledge the, the correction there. <laughs> but yeah, I love matcha too. Matcha's great, but uh, but yeah, mate is uh, totally different, totally different plant for sure. So you have a lot of stimulating beverages you like. Um, would you say like, you know, you've recorded so many people and I'm curious uh, in the metal community or just like the New York scene of creative musicians, who the biggest coffee freaks are that you've encountered without like feeling like you have to blow up anybody's spot? Oh, no, totally. So, well, I mean, my my buddy Mick, you know, who I played with in Kralis and lots of other stuff uh, is 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 a, like a definitely like a coffee fanatic, but he's not like a coffee snob. You know what I mean? Like he appreciates mm -hmm. good coffee, but he's not he's not like um, going out and buying a 
$5,000 espresso machine or anything like that. Um, but oh, one, one, uh, one group of dudes that was really fun to tour with was Imperial Triumphant. That was one of the last tours I got to do before COVID. And all three of those guys are kind of coffee snobs. In fact, I think they, they even have a, um, Imperial Triumphant brand coffee. That oh, they shit. Wow. Uh, they like made <laughs> friends with a, with a, with a, you know, a roaster, uh, in Greenpoint and, and, and got him to produce this whole thing. So that was, that was the ultimate coffee tour because that was like the first priority whenever we got into any town was like, you know, one of those guys was on the phone figuring out the best place to go and we <laughs> take a long, a long walk and we just, you know, just get an espresso or a macchiato or whatever. And then, and then just spend two hours like walking to some other coffee shop. It was great. It was such a great way to kill time. Nice. Yeah. I love that. And, and so is Mick like a, a black coffee person or. Mick, no, he's kind of in anything, but I, okay. I want to say his regular deal is, is, is milk. Um, Cause he's like, okay. So the reason why I was able to make the transition to Mate, I think really easily is because like, I'm a, I'm a black coffee sipping mm-hmm. kind of guy. I like hot coffee, even in 95 degree summer weather, I mm-hmm. love hot beverages and drinking them slowly. So uh mick is like the other kind of coffee drinker where you put the milk in to cool it down so you can chug it gotcha um interesting i remember my first girlfriend was like that too she was just kind of like boom and then that was it so you're kind of taking like a cup of coffee this big and treating it like an espresso i don't even like shooting espresso i like sipping that too i i want to like i love the experience of drinking a coffee or mate beverage so much that i want it to kind of last forever (laughs) <laughs> well you're a man of good taste uh it, I, I was gonna like wait to get to tremolo till later on in this conversation but uh i just feel like maybe coffee's a good segue into it but uh you know you and mick are both like tremolo heads and um like do you feel like caffeine is necessary to get to that point or do you feel like it like makes it more difficult or like is there any connection there between your tremolo and uh caffeine consumption Interesting. I, I honestly don't think there's too much of a connection because I think, to, you know, caffeine, it's like it can go either way with trying to do something fast. It can give you energy and, and, and focus. And so you're able to feel like you're, you're doing those activities better, but it can also lead you to being like, I, I can't remember the, the science behind it, but I think, you know, caffeine does makes more lactic acids in, in your muscles or something, something like that. Don't take my word for it, but <laughs> something where it actually makes like muscle, uh, it, it makes you more tense. Let's just say that there's like a degree of, of, of tenseness that it adds. So I don't know. I think it maybe depends on the kind of tremolo picker you are. My gotcha. tremolo picking is like an automatic sloppy robot where <laughs> I don't, I don't pay any attention to it. It's kind of just like, usually it's just going and I'm when if it's a tremolo situation, I'm mostly paying attention to the left hand. Gotcha. Um, whereas when I'm doing like an arpeggiated riff, it's the opposite. It's like all the focus is in the right, the rhythm being created by the right hand, and the left hand is kind of this like lagging behind, uh, <laughs> sluggish guy. You know, kind of like the the picking hand is with tremolo. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily one way or the other for me. Uh, with with that um yeah for me it's just kind of like i i'm one of these people you you get up in the morning and you're just like you're not you're just not even a human until you've had the the first cup it's just like forget it (laughs) i did have a period where i totally quit caffeine when i was i was having like a 
acid reflux related issue mm. and the and the the ear nose throat doctor was just like well here just cut out all these foods that can create acid reflux and it was basically like every single thing you would want to put in your body um and coffee was was on there uh alcohol was on there so that's when i quit quit drinking alcohol completely like around around the same time i quit coffee and then kind of came back with the mate but uh yeah that was um uh lost my train of thought the the stopping drinking coffee oh yeah so so there was like a good month or something where i was like completely caffeine free and i was really surprised because i was anticipating being such a caffeine addict for so many years that i would have horrible withdrawal Mm. um and i didn't it was there was like no headaches i mean it was like it took some getting used to just in terms of feeling groggy in the morning but uh I remember having a conversation with, um, you might know this guy, uh, Mario Diaz de Leon, the composer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know him. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome musician. But yeah, I remember like bumping him into him at roulette years and years ago. And he was just like, yeah, I totally quit drinking coffee and I'm feeling like my body's natural energy return. I remember like those words specifically. And then yeah, watching that same thing happen where just even over like the course of a month, I was like, oh yeah, like now I don't feel like a zombie in the morning when I feel like after like three weeks. And then of course I got into the mate and it was just all over. I was right, right back to being totally addicted to caffeine. <laughs> well, um, I, I guess uh, I have some questions here to get started on with uh, Behold the Arctopus and where that, you know, uh, sort of aesthetic comes from. Uh, uh, so like, you know, Behold the, Arctopus, Behold the Arctopus is the first band I heard of yours and uh, for anybody that isn't aware of it, like this is like the most like complicated music, like the most kind of like out there involved stuff. Um, but the the aesthetic is so futuristic, and uh, I just like I'm curious if you're into like transhumanism or like if it's just like science fiction or like what are your kind of non metal uh, intellectual influences of like what what sort of branch of futurism? Okay, do you we'll wrap we'll wrap around to that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a better example of where it comes from. Right. <laughs> Nocturnus, the key. So okay. it is metal, but I don't know if you can see this album cover, but like this, like here, maybe this sword. <laughs> nice. It, it looked. It basically looks like you know, Warhammer 40,000 or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that like combo of of sci-fi, futuristic, dystopian robot apocalypse kind of stuff. Um, that was always, like that, I, I think, you know, Nocturnus was probably one of the first bands to combine death metal and the, and the sci-fi stuff. And they also had a full-time keyboardist, which I think further drove home that vibe. But that, that combo of like extreme metal and sci-fi, I'm not gonna say, I know there's other examples over time, but um, that just was, I think, really fresh in our minds. And me and and Mike Lerner, who started the band, the guitar player, um, back in 2000 or 2001, or whenever we started playing together, we didn't really have much of a preconceived notion about what we wanted to do. We just knew we wanted to do some kind of like a, really over the top metal band mm-hmm. that had this, this kind of sci-fi aesthetic in it somewhere. And the plan, there was never a plan to be instrumental, but it was just obvious to us very early on that 
that made sense. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's like, it's always been part of the identity, even though we've been an instrumental band, which is kind of funny. Cause it's like all you have at that point to show the identity is like an album cover and song titles. Right. So that's, that's, what we've used we've used those two avenues to kind of like keep that as as sort of the aesthetic but yeah outside of actual music and metal i've always been a, a sci-fi guy um fantasy and sci-fi and um since i was a kid you know grew up with star trek and um i remember forbidden planet from the 50s like being the most terrifying movie i'd ever seen in my life when i was seven years old or whenever i saw it um so yeah, that's always been like a major just kind of piece of of uh, of myself, and so it kind of made sense to bring that into. I feel like it kind of fit the, the technical mm-hmm. um, musical vibe that we had to have this, you know, similar, vi- you know, some, something that has like a little bit of a visual similarity, and 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 in, even in terms of having like you know words with too many syllables that sound sort of sci- science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was like a nice. Uh, and and once again, this wasn't really like conscious. This was just kind of how things are developed. But in, in, in retrospect, I can kind of look back and say like, oh yeah, I mean, these these things, they kind of go together. Um, but So you aren't like a, one of these people that's like trying to uh, you know, upload your consciousness into the cloud uh, before you die or like, uh, and, and you know, I'm... I'm sort of scoffing at this, uh, but I'm, I'm also very much this type of person. So, uh, I mean, you aren't trying well, to like freeze it. yourself. Dude, it's interesting because in a way we're all just doing that now, whether Mm -hmm. we like it or not, just because the way the internet is, anything that we do that uses it, that leaves a trail. I mean, maybe this, well, you know, even this podcast, because this is going to get posted on YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was going to say this conversation we're having maybe isn't recorded and just goes into the ether, but, but it's not, it's being recorded. So yeah, this is all this kind of weird legacy we're leaving behind um and i don't know i mean it's like if there's a thousand albums of my music by the time i die that are just in circulation in a way that's kind of like my consciousness there's like a a part of my consciousness has been uploaded and preserved so yeah it seems ridiculous to to talk about in a in a star trek futurama (laughs) kind of way but it's actually not so far from what's already happening. Just, just in the way that like artificial intelligence is just like already here, making significant, huge changes in the world. I mean, just mm-hmm. look at, just look at the the politics over the last four years, and how the way people interact over computers and and, and the way stuff is sort of there forever. How that actually changes like the course of the political. Uh, um, situation of a whole country or, or the, the whole world, you know, it's, so yeah, that shit's real. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not to, to, to get more specifically back to your question. I'm not one of these people who is all the time super concerned with like immortality, like the idea of living forever. Like I'm very anti procreation. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to have kids. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty adamantly against it. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Antinatalism, but, um, or say again, like the antinatalism thing, or are you I not don't like know what that means specifically? 
I feel like that's just like the the movement of like exactly what you're saying. Um, just people who think that's unethical to procreate. Yeah, I mean, to to, to it's a complicated conversation because obviously right. it is just the way of all life. So you can't you can't just discount that. But at the same time, I mean, just to, to spend just a, a couple seconds on it, it's more just like okay, look around, look around the world of modern human society. Is it really the most responsible thing to have your own child when there are so many children that could use taking care of that already exist? Yep. How about adopt one of those? Okay, so mm-hmm. we can move on from that. <laughs> you <laughs> don't yeah, want to so, hand down that, uh, you know, your musical technique uh, that is, you know, I'm sure, in the genome. <laughs> well, so, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not so concerned with like, immortality and living forever through my through passing on my genes and so on like for me if i'm concerned with that at all it's way good enough to to just leave behind all these albums i've made Mm -hmm. like that's far more than enough i don't even necessarily feel like i need that Mm -hmm. just the just the act of making the stuff is good enough for me um sharing it with other people and having it last forever is just a bonus that's a that's a wonderful bonus and 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 in terms of my current life what's cool about it is is things like this happen mm-hmm. you know you hear the music i make and now here we are having an interesting conversation about it so that's cool but that's not the reason i'm doing it you know that's not the purpose there there isn't a purpose but if we had to assign a purpose to it it would it, the first and foremost it would be just because it's it's a wonderful thing to do mm-hmm. um i just like the the process of creation and and self-expression and 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 creativity i feel like that as humans that's kind of all we have going for us almost the ability to 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 dream and imagine you know it's like that's there's so much awful shit about us but that's like one <laughs> thing i can point to and be like well that's beautiful you know yeah and i suppose if you leave behind enough of a catalog if nothing else we can model an ai based on your output and try to replicate you i've, <laughs> I've heard that they're trying to do that with like philip k dick and stuff like that uh, just people wow that wow uh, so i mean yeah, maybe... yeah i mean that's kind of like when they would make um stephen hawking on the holodeck in star trek and play mm-hmm. po- and data would play poker with him it was like yeah it was kind of like okay that's not actually him but it's this you know computer aggregation of all the information we have them yeah so once again i i'm not so concerned for that for myself like it's um yeah i I, i'm not i'm not so worried about what like how i am left after i die or whatever like that's um yeah i don't know there's just there's too much unknown when it comes to that to be too concerned with it uh, so I, I heard this interview where you're talking about uh, vegetarianism or veganism, and I'm not sure if you're still uh, on that boat, but uh, I, I was also talking to Ben Monder re- lately, you know, the guitarist from New York, and he mentioned this like weird apple juice diet that he's doing, like some fasting Whoa. apple juice thing. And like he, he's like, it's just coffee, apple juice, and some weird powder. Um, and it says, he said that you know, he does it so that he can have a little bit more fluidity with his fingers. And I'm curious, uh, cool. <laughs> uh, you know, with Behold the Octopus and just a lot of stuff you do, there's such, you know, such a physical component. And uh, I'm curious what you do to, like, ensure, uh, in sort of, like, practical terms, to ensure that you have the physical uh, capabilities you need, whether it's eating. Oh, drinking. man. Great, great question. The answer is, like, nothing. I'm terrible with that. <laughs> shit. I'm, I'm, I'm the furthest thing from an athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, 
certain musicians, especially drummers, especially fast drummers, it's like almost like you're in the category of athletics too. Right. I'm the furthest from that imaginable. I mean, yes, the ball of the octopus material seems like we're all these crazy fast shredding players, but and I know everybody that's probably like viewed as a technical player has a similar thing to say, but like, I don't view myself as that crazy fast technical musician. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm more of an ideas guy. I'm more of a composer. I'm more of a producer. And yeah, I have some, some ability on the instrument, but like we were talking before about, you know, tremolo versus arpeggiated riffs and stuff. I never developed my left hand that great. I'm like, I'm right-handed. Most guitar players who are right-handed pick with the right fret with the left, which is sort of fundamentally backwards. You should really be using your better hand to do this shit, which requires more dexterity. Interesting. Um, and speaking of Behold the Octopus, Mike Lerner is one of these guys who's like card-carrying ambidextrous. He's like, <laughs> I do, I write with my left hand, but I play guitar right-handed and he does certain things right-handed and certain things left-handed. So for him, it's like, he's got that left-hand fluidity that I, that I don't have and might never have. Cause I think I would have had to just be on a different track when I was really young and I started playing. Um, but I've always, I've never been a practicing player. I don't practice my instruments. Okay. I only write music. That's it. I, I, and jam, but jamming is usually a way to also write music. So I don't work on my technique. I don't have any kind of routine. I never have had one, um, but I love playing. Mm -hmm. And so I pick up the instrument and I, and, I, and I make a composition with it or I improvise and either record that and it leads to a composition or I just, it just is what it is. Um, but I don't have that brain that a lot of other musicians have where you're like working on your technique. I just mm -hmm. don't do that and never have. So there's like certain aspects of, of, of my technique, which never developed like the, the, the dexterity of my third finger in particular, it, it feels like it has like a weight tied to it. Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> and I watch Mick and I watch Mike and Kevin and all the other guitar players I play with doing all this de dexterous shit with the left hand that I'm just like, but with the right hand, I can pick really fast so I can kind of hide it mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, it's funny. I like uh, I have this problem where now like this this side of my hand has gotten so much more muscular than this, uh, and it like it's it looks ridiculous sometimes. And so um, you can actually see the difference. Yeah, like uh, it's. I mean, maybe you can't see it that well here, but um, especially after you. I, I like, think I can see it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit weird. Um, and like there's just so much more tightness in this hand. But uh, so I'm, I imagine that Mick is one of these guys that's like uh like more woodshed oriented uh like he no he's like me he what? he doesn't he doesn't practice technique either um like it's funny uh mike Lerner from behold he's a practicer guy i don't know like what his routine is is these days but he doesn't compose a lot of music but he's like very into like instructional videos and like becoming a better guitar player like that is like a focus of his and to some degree with Kevin too, Kevin from Dysrhythmia and Gorguts, because he's a guitar teacher, he's trained, so's Mike. Me and Mick are not very trained. Like I had a little bit of guitar lessons when I was a kid, but we're mostly self-taught. Um so I don't know. I think I'm not gonna say that that's just like there's two kinds of musicians. Right. 
but there are those tendencies. I think you have the tendency to be somebody who's more, who just when you're young, you get more into technique and more into getting better at certain things and, and improving your, your ability. And then you have maybe people that are more on the side of the spectrum, like me and Mick, which are just like, oh, I just want to make music, whatever. And you're not even really thinking about it. And you just pick up the guitar and you just do what you do. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying like Kevin and Mike don't have that, that in them. Obviously, like all of us as musicians, we just get inspired or we feel like playing and we play. But um, like, I remember Kevin telling me like back when we first met, he would do the thing where you'd like sit and watch TV and play guitar while you're watching TV. I've never done that in my life. Like the idea of combining those two activities is just like, doesn't make any sense. I'm like, if I'm doing music, I'm doing, doing music. I'm, I'm, I'm basically like, if I'm doing music, I'm writing a piece of music or I'm making an album. I'm doing some piece of the process of making an album every time I pick up an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, I figured that so, everybody yeah. in New York was just a, a woodshed person, like fundamentally. So <laughs> that's, that's good to know. And it, you know, it's interesting. I only really know that kind of thing about the dudes that I play with in bands. You know, it's I, I, all these guys that I come into the studio and I record, that's not necessarily thing, something that comes up in conversation all the time. So a lot of my musician friends, I actually have no idea what their relationship with, uh, with playing and practicing is. Um, I think you can you can guess for certain ones that like went to college for performance you had to like practice to be part of that world. So chances are maybe there's some of that that, that sticks mm-hmm. in your life. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I just, there's a lot of people out there that, yeah, I just probably have no idea even how, how our relationships to playing the instrument compare. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, well, well, I have a, a sort of corny question that I think there's a deep thing behind it, but it's a kind of corny mode of asking it. But uh, I wanted to ask about basically like band logos, because um, oh yeah, or, or just even like the aesthetic uh, for you know like album covers and stuff like that. Because it seems like there's like a like an arms race basically for like you know who can make like now the more the more brutal cover, the more like you know like uh, I saw the cover for Malignancies uh, Inhuman Grotesqueries, and I was just like, holy shit, this is uh, so imaginatively fucked up. But uh, That's a good- you know. Uh, then like you know logos get like more and more indecipherable and like at a certain point then you just see somebody who has like you know, just normal text and you're like what the uh but you know if we're running out of these like uh like if we're running out of headroom for making complicated looking shit uh or like brutal riffs uh what do you sort of see as like the alternate means like uh what do you do once you run out of brutality to add <laughs> okay so I guess I don't believe there is a ceiling. Okay. Um, Interesting. The, the, because the thing is like we had, okay, this is a band that's more recent, right? And here's your scraggly logo. And, you know, there's certain, like, yes, over time, um, there's been more of the ultra complicated ones, but the arms race for that was over long ago. I mean, it's just like, you've had shit, you've had unreadable band logos for 20 plus years, mm-hmm. uh, more, more. Um, I mean, even going back to, uh, we think of maybe the morbid angel logo as really straightforward. Um, and it is in the grand scheme of things, but back then in the eighties, uh, you know, we're getting close to close to like 30, 40 years ago. Um, that, that was probably just like, what the fuck are they doing? This is a mess. Like, wait, this doesn't look like anything. So it's all relative. Um, and I think that, 
yeah, I mean, there's more and more bands and there's more and more bands doing shit that's similar sonically and with logos looking kind of similar. So in a sense, there is like a compression effect happening, but I don't think there's actually like a limit where like all of a sudden it's just like, nope, there's no more room anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't make any more brutal riffs or logos. No, there's an, there's an infinite number of, of, mm-hmm. of everything to, to be made. Um, so yeah, that was, what was the rest of your question? I guess just like, uh, I guess it wasn't even a question. Maybe it was just sort of like putting an idea in your mind to see where, uh, you went with it. But I mean, it, I guess like, you know, it, it seems like now, like it's almost more like world building oriented. Like, uh, you can't just be a band that's like brutal and whatever. It's like, you almost have to have like a, like a whole, like, uh, you know, concept or like little world built around your, uh, project. That's, like a little more of an extra musical aesthetic that's like pretty mm-hmm. specifically defined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's not the case that you have to have that, but the, but the case that there's so much fucking music in the world and there's so many bands and specifically so many brutal death metal bands. I mean, mm-hmm. this tiny subgenre of a subgenre, you have just thousands and thousands of these bands um, that, uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, wait, say, say your question again. I totally lost my train of thought. I mean, I, I think it's just because it's not a question. It's just a, a, a my own babble and seeing where you go with it. But uh, yeah, just like, uh, you know, world building instead of sort of like making. Oh, oh. Yeah. I, I remembered it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's not necessarily that like more people have to do that. It's just that the ones that do, the ones that have like a more defined aesthetic are the ones that we hear about. Right. Um, So yeah, so basically it's just like, yeah, if you have a great album with a really boring album cover, then nobody who just sees the album cover is gonna be like, oh, what's that? Let me check that out. But if it does, then they're more likely to check it out. So Mm -hmm. just, I think it's as simple as that. It's like, yeah, the more you get, the harder it is to notice any one of them unless there's just something to make it stick out. And I think, yeah, when you develop the, um, the artistic side, you know, like um, Imperial Triumphant, to mention those guys again, I think are a good example because there's plenty of like, you know, jazz influenced, dissonant, shreddy metal bands out there, mm-hmm. but they developed the, the whole like New York art deco mask wearing uh, side of it so well, so completely that people freak freak out over it. And I'm not saying like, it's not because the music's good too. It, the, the music's, I think what makes people, you know, you, you come for the masks and you stay for the music huh, maybe with yeah. them, you know, mm-hmm. certain people. Um, so I think, yeah, with your brutal death metal band, if you have the crazy logo that kind of looks like everybody else's, but your angle is that you're about, you know, like subterranean, you know, like you have like the Tremors theme, like the, remember the Kevin Bacon movie? Like maybe you have subterranean worms that eat people. Oh man, you got to fucking watch Tremors. Great, great fucking late eighties, early nineties, somewhere in that um, dumb horror movie. Uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, it's like, uh, if you get that rather than it just being monsters eating people, if it's like a very specific kind of monster, mm-hmm. then maybe whoever was like, Oh yeah, that's like that movie I liked, you know, then they're just more likely to check it out. And then the aesthetic is, is fun. And if the music is great, 
then you 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 love it that much more and and so it it, it sticks a little bit more mm-hmm. um so yeah i think it's just like another i i'm i'm bad at that side of things like i i'm, I'm so music focused like mm-hmm. sure the cover and the and the logo is something that I've started making my own logos recently and, and, and uh, maybe not even that recently, but like that, I kind of like, I can kind of get behind, but the idea of having like a concept behind your band, right? I'm worse at that and costumes, forget it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm not going to be getting on stage with a costume anytime soon. I, even though it's, I love it when portal does it, mm-hmm. it just, it's like, to me, that's not really the way my, my brain works with, with, with music, with bands. Um, so yeah, it's like, I, I totally get why that's a, uh, that's like an important part of, of who ends up like actually getting listened to more and getting a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, it's like music is a time-based art form. Mm-hmm. So you can't absorb all of it unless you sit there and take the time. But seeing a band photo or seeing a logo or seeing an album cover is instantaneous. Right. You guys, that that advantage to it. it. Portal is definitely the band that comes to mind when uh, you know you say came for the masks and stayed for the music because uh, I mean they're yeah. just so disgustingly good. Um. <laughs> and 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 a lot of a lot of times with them specifically, people might not come for the music initially because there's just this sort of metaphorical and somewhat literal wall of haze in the way of the music. It's I love. I love that they're one of the few lo-fi tech metal bands out there, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's like the more technical and the more intricate your music gets and your metal, almost always the cleaner, the recording and the more triggered and the more edited, like those tend to go hand in hand. So it's really refreshing to have a band like portal where they're shredding their asses off. And, and if you look at the hands of the guitar players, the stuff they're doing on the instrument is insane, but it kind of just sounds like, right. Yeah, Unless not, you sit and listen, and then you're like, "Oh, okay, I can hear it. I can hear it." Um, and then it, it becomes this like mysterious shit that's almost like quasi hallucinatory and like preys on your imagination as much as it does on like literally what you're taking in. And to me, that's just like, "Fuck yeah!" That's that's where art becomes the most interesting is when you leave this ambiguity intact, and you're not like feeding everybody all the information one two three four five in order you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um it, you know we were talking about behold and like the sort of technical aspect of it and uh portal i think is an interesting you know uh, different version of that i'm curious in terms of like virtuosity what are your favorite instantiations of that focus like uh you know whether it's like you know somebody in jazz or you know death metal like who are some like prime influences in terms of like i have so much facility um influences like specifically or just like people or, i appreciate in that respect i guess more like in insp- like who are you just like impressed by or like who who would you curate as like uh like these people are doing technicality so well without it necessarily being like you know technicality oh man i mean there's so many examples i, I feel like so many of my music friends i look up to in that respect um you know lila from defeated sanity is a great example. Uh, he's, you know, the drummer in the band and they're presented as a brutal technical death metal band. So in a way that's his identity, brutal, brutal technical death metal drummer. Mm-hmm. But he's also 
the composer of all the music and on the last album, the only guitarist. Um, so, and, and he's you know just as amazing a guitar player as he is a drummer and arguably maybe even better a composer than he is a, a musician. Uh, so, you know, that that's a great example. I mean, you have somebody like Mick who, He's a good example because you, you you see him play guitar, especially his solo stuff, and you know you get this impression of virtuoso right away. Mm-hmm. But when you really like analyze his playing, it's not the fastest out there. I mean, it's not um, he's not like Michelangelo Badio from Nitro mm-hmm. or something. He's not one of these just mm-hmm. like speed free technique guys. You know, in the grand scheme of things. There's certain things that I do that are sloppier than him and certain things that he does that are sloppier than me, but it's like we both have sloppiness as like a pretty significant part of our style. But to me, that's actually, you know, I'm not going to say it's because of the sloppiness, but what's awesome about Mick is his actual voice as a composer and as an improviser Mm -hmm. and the actual notes he decides to play at any given moment and how he decides to play them. It's not about how clean and fast it is. So to me, that's like such a great marriage of technique that allows you to do some shit, which isn't common, Mm -hmm. but also like just actually making cool musical decisions at every microsecond and having the music that comes out be like really compelling. Um, Weasel Walter, another great example. I mean, he's, he's somebody who... It's awesome because, okay, he played drums in Behold the Octopus. He was definitely the, like, least technical drummer that we had in terms of, like, him being able to do, like, fast bass drums and, and um, you know, whatever. Like, actually just, like, the cleanness of his playing and stuff. But in a weird way, he was, in in a way, like, my favorite drummer we ever had because the way he played is so – the way he plays is so aggressive. There's so much emotion. Mm-hmm in every stroke um, of his playing that it doesn't matter that like, even if like there was something that I wrote for him that was maybe like slightly too technically challenging and we adapted it, it sounded even better the way he played it in the Mm -hmm. like less technical way. And I'm not saying there was like a lot of examples like that, but just the way he sounds on the drum kit is very particular and I love it. I just, it's a little rough around the edges, but like I'm rough around the edges too. And I, I just feel like everybody, everybody who's playing, I, I really look up to who's like viewed as a technical player is rough around the edges. Robert Fripp is a great example. He was for me, probably the most important musician period, because that's like when I first got into guitar playing, it was all about King Crimson. Um, there've been other great guitar players in that band too, but you know, he's obviously the the consistent one and has like, such a unique style um and yeah he's not a super tight player but i really what i really respect about him is he's one of these guys who's like i came into guitar with like no natural ability and it's all what i worked for Mm -hmm. okay it's a little bit like american dream like pull yourself up by your bootstraps like a little Mm -hmm. (laughs) unrealistic for everyone and he's obviously like a rich white english guy but um but I do appreciate that he's just, he, he was not given the gift of, of Eddie Van Halen. You know what I mean? He doesn't have that fluidity as a guitar player. Mm-hmm. But I fucking like his music a hell of a lot more than Eddie Van Halen. 
<laughs> I mean, Van Halen's great. Nothing but respect for that guy. And there's plenty of stuff that Fripp did, which I don't care for. But there's certain little bits of the music that he contributed to this world where I'm just like, yeah, that's like the coolest shit ever. And no one's ever really like picked up that thread and, and followed it. Mm -hmm. um, like a, the, the, the intro to the song Lark's Tongues in Aspect Part 3, which is the last song on Three of a Perfect Pair, which is a very strange King Crimson album. It's like half ultra pop and half like experimental improv. Mm -hmm. But that's just like one of the most ripping, insane guitar passages ever recorded. And nobody plays that way. Like that, that actual method of kind of cross picking and, and he even teaches it um, in his, his guitar crap shit. Yeah. Just, just no one really like sounds like that. Um, so, so I think it was a really long winded way of, of, of getting around to, to, to the point. It's um, what interests me with musicians is, the, is their voice. Uh, and even with the ones that are viewed as being sort of like shreddy technical players, that's not why I like them. It isn't because of how good they are. It's mm -hmm. because of the music that they actually created. Gotcha. Um, it's, like hearing... the, it's like the con the content, not the, uh, not that the makes sense, yeah. Um, I, I was recently hip to uh, the Orthom album, uh, Ove, and like, I mm -hmm. just, that shit just... Ove. Ov, sorry, uh, it, that just hits the spot for me, and like it, it's you know so endurance based, and like I feel like that's a much more interesting version of being technical is to just be like minimal and endurance based instead of like like look at the like thing that I have worked out that's so coordinationy and like you know specific and um, yeah, it's just like it seems more potent and visceral um, compared to like you know this uber clean stuff, so. Absolutely. And, and it's like what it's doing is it's actually it's forcing the musicians to do something that's so ridiculous that they're sort of like um, not being, being forced to fuck up isn't isn't really the right way to characterize it. But it's like. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if they really wanted to make something that was the most repetitive hypnotic thing, they would have played every riff once and looped it in the computer. Mm -hmm. That would have been the most hypnotic, hearing exactly the same minutes of sound repeating, right? But that wasn't the point. I'm not even gonna say there was a point. They're just an intuitive band, like like a lot of the music I make, where you just, whatever, you, you just do it. There's no like, mm -hmm. I, there's no big concept behind it. But it's like why that is unique and interesting is because it's played and because they actually play the same pattern for like five or six minutes at a time. Um, and then those little inconsistencies become almost the lead element, like right. aspects of the sound of the pick on the strings. You might start focusing on that instead of the series of notes being played. And now just by nature of your focus changing, the riff is different. Right. Like, whoa, that's pretty, it's, that's getting into some sorcery uh, <laughs> parts of, parts of music. So yeah, it's, it's, um, that's a great, that really relates to what I was just talking about, about the technical musicianship thing, because mm -hmm. it's like, yes, it's incredibly impressive that they played that, but that's not why it's good. It's good because it sounds cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, on this little like uh, list of topics I have written here, I, I said virtuosity dot 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 magic, and I spelled it without a K or anything. But you said sorcery, and so I'm curious. And I I feel like it's also 
coolest not to like admit any occult dabbling in public but uh do you do you fuck with the occult <laughs> no i don't um and not because i have like strong opinions uh, mm-hmm. i'm just kind of not really that knowledgeable i mean aside from the cursory stuff that you just know if you listen to a lot of metal right right right. you know like i know a little bit about satanism and you know <laughs> my, my, my my favorite way to characterize um capitalism recently is an evil version of satanism okay <laughs> i mean i i know because they're, have... they're both they're both sort of fundamentally religions of the selfish mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, uh, and, and and sort of being at the expense of other people but like capitalism is just like wrapped in this like wholesome this false wholesomeness where satanism is just kind of honest <laughs> yeah I, I think somebody i you know once heard them describe anton LaVey as basically like ayn rand but like you know like prancing around in capes uh so <laughs> yeah I, I honestly don't know enough about Anne rand or anton levey to really like have an opinion on that i know you know who each of them are but mm-hmm. i'm not deep enough um well, to um, really have an opinion on it. yeah but i don't i don't know that much about the occult um i am uh you know on the grand continuum of things, I guess more or less a, a, a science and facts and information guy. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I get fed up with that to a certain point because I, you know, I think one of the 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 de, one of the define the defining thing about science is kind of always admitting that you don't have the whole picture, that you don't mm-hmm. have it all figured out. You're always asking questions. You're always being skeptical. So I think it's interesting that some scientists sometimes just completely denounce the world of the spiritual Mm -hmm. being like these two systems don't can't work at the same time. But but why Um, isn't that isn't the spiritual just something that could be explained with some other branch of science? I mean, Mm -hmm. if the definition of science is that you, you kind of can't discount that, then why are you discounting that? That's. That's that's my only, and, it, and it's not even necessarily something that's like said all the time, but it's the vibe that I get. That it's kind of just like, well, you got to pick science and religion. It's like, no, why? Mm-hmm. Why? Why do we? The whole point is we can't be that specific because we're constantly revising our understanding of reality. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, I guess scientism can be religion in and of itself. Um, I, I have here also written down this list of topics: Satan? Question mark. So. Um, I guess, uh, you know, some people have said that black metal basically is just like like the one thing that characterizes it is the involvement of Satanism on some level. And so I'm curious what Satanism means to you. Um, well, yeah, get, getting back to what I was saying before, I mean, my, my understanding of Satanism is more or less a religion of the self. It, see, it strikes me that it's not far from existentialism, where it's more or less, okay, there's no over overarching morality or point to existence so life is what you make it Mm -hmm. um and i think satanism maybe has like a little more of the vibe of like making yourself the best you can be Mm -hmm. and that's where i feel like it it starts to head into the capitalism domain where it's just kind of like yeah well amass as much wealth as you can at the expense of every other person on the planet so um I, I, I don't know how specific Satanism is with that, if it's sort of like how how Satanism feels about helping your fellow man and mm-hmm. your fellow animal and your fellow rock. Like, I'm not really sure where it, where it lands on that, but it seems to be that it's, yeah, more or less the vibe of like, f- 
fuck establishment. There's no like, there's nobody telling you out there like this is reality. These are the rules. This is what it all is. Mm-hmm. So you kind of you kind of make it make it for yourself. Is that is that kind of your understanding of it? Because this isn't like a super educated. Um, I feel like uh, that's I think reasonably close to how I think of it. Um, I, I definitely think that there's like a like a rational selfishness component to it. Um, that's a good like, way of putting it. Rational selfishness. Yeah. Yeah, um, like a, the sort of objectivism thing of Ayn Rand again, but like with a little bit more like uh, like ritual and like, you know, like the pageantry of cape wearing and all that. But uh, uh, I feel like... Right, right. I mean, I feel like that almost we don't even have to talk about because that's just like neither here nor there. It's just like, what, yeah, what is really the... What is the idea? What is the philosophy? I mean, it's like, yeah, what the, the, the costumes are, you know... Yeah. Um, I, I love chaos magic personally, which is, you know, like, uh, I mean, I, I feel dorky saying that, but uh, it's, I feel like very much like, let's take the tech technology from whatever we want, like sort of like pick and choose. Like, if you're like, I want to take a little bit from Christianity, take a little bit from Christianity. Um, it's like, kind of like, you don't have to like, go through this, you know, lengthy hierarchical process of, you know, whatever. Um, and I mean, then you get people like, you know, throbbing bristle and all those people who are like, you know, trying to like uh, like send messages telepathically to like you know space travelers and shit and like it gets a little bit weird but like through, through chaos magic yeah that's yeah I know just a tiny bit about that that's that's that shit involves like making sigils and mm-hmm. yeah okay and um, I guess I ask because like the Kralis logo kind of looks sigil like you know oh cool yeah you know that's that's actually something I didn't think about but but yeah metal logos in general and sigils kind of have. Mm-hmm. A, a bit of a commonality where yeah you're making like a, a a graphic out of letters which aren't really supposed to look like the individual letters themselves but yeah but getting back to what you were saying a second ago um about so yeah what were you saying so sa- satanism uh rational selfishness oh the rational selfishness um yeah oh oh no no this is what you were saying about about chaos magic uh being like sort of you pick and choose mm-hmm. which part. So interesting thought about that. That's what all religions already are. Mm-hmm. Um, not on the individual person basis, but Christianity wasn't just like, okay, we're designing Christianity. Here it is. Here's the rules. Um, okay, here it is. You want to be a Christian? No, it's yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's the combination of all the world religions that came before it. Mm-hmm. including like 90% Judaism. True, true. You know, we just like absorbed that whole book, which isn't even a book to begin with. It's a, it's a compilation of books written over thousands of years and mistranslated over thousands of years. So yeah, it, it, I think that's what every religion is, um, even if you don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And so I think your idea, what you're talking about, chaos magic, that's in a way the most honest because you're just being like, okay, I myself, based on my own experience, am creating the religion that makes sense to me. And then you don't have to buy into anything that you feel like is is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, chances are, any kind of like really basic spiritual conclusions you come to are shared by everybody in the entire world. Yeah, and totally. Throughout time. Um, things like you know, there's an aspect of holiness and spirituality to the whole globe and to the whole cosmos. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think there's any religion which would say that is not true. Because 
even the ones that are the more Baroque or whatever, like traditional, say that God created all this stuff. If, you know, if you're if you're going Christianity specifically or Judaism specifically, everybody has a creation myth where all the stuff is created by a by a um, theological entity. So by definition, everything is everything is holy and everything is God. So yeah, it's easier to just be like Carl Sagan and just be like, yeah, I mean, isn't this all God? And you know, aren't aren't we all like worthy? just by existing and we're all connected because we're actually built out of elements that were created by stars. I mean, you know, it, it, that, that, that point at where you draw the line of like where your identity begins and ends is really fucking blurry. Once you start to pick it apart and, and be like, Oh, okay. My body is actually a collection of all these um, microorganisms and you know, all the bacteria in my body is actually like, contributing to the decisions I make as a person with free will and then you and I being humans like we're very close cousins on the, the tree of evolution right and then you know we all can be traced back to the same bacterium and then we all came from the inorganic stuff so we're all just like one big body you know the whole the whole cosmos is uh, a certain way of looking at it so yeah fucking pick and choose whatever you want from those religions they're all the fucking same anyway the shit that we go to war and kill people over are these different distinctions without differences. It, something with the chaos magic thing is also like, I, I think that they see belief as a technology. So it's kind of like, you don't have to maintain a belief because it is true. You maintain it because it's useful and you sort of discard it when you're done with it. Um, so like it has this flexible sense of belief and truth, which I think is interesting um, as opposed to like trying to be like, this is how things came about. Like this is our story and we're sticking to it. Um, you know. Well, right, because it, like getting back to what I was saying before about the, the basic tenet of science of just being like, I'm always at any given moment willing to revise my understanding mm -hmm. of things. Yeah. If that is your vibe, then you're just open to any possibility. You're not ignorantly discounting anything. And just, yeah, just, just um, I mean, we can put it really simply. Just have a fucking open mind. Don't pretend mm -hmm. like you have it all figured out. True, yeah. Um, you know, just any any religion, any codified religion is 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 breaking those rules. And any scientist who briefly forgets the fact that all these things that we think we know are all subject to reevaluation at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And you know, the best of them all know that. But I think it's easy to get bogged down in totally. the, the 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 nitty gritty of of connecting facts and and. Um, and, and and if something seems too ridiculous, like the existence of a of a Christian God, you're just like, oh, well, then that whole system is bullshit. Well, OK, yeah, not every single part of it, because there's probably parts to the experience of spirituality, which can be scientifically defined by the current sciences we have and other parts which maybe could be defined by by future. I'm saying it's all the same. That's fair. Um, so uh, I think. We have a mutual friend, Charlie Looker, who uh, he did this video um, about coming to terms with evil in like uh, like metal or just any sort of aesthetic. And like, I feel like it was put in terms of like almost like, you know, somebody who like might listen to R. Kelly, but like, you know, have to like come to terms with the fact that R. Kelly like does this and that. And so like, uh, I guess, you know, I, I'm I brought up veganism earlier and um, like I'm like a sort of like card carrying animal rights person. and 
being involved in like metal and just like how it's like a sort of violent evil like world uh but like yeah it's also like not genuinely evil or whatever but like um on some level you know he's saying that you are endorsing evil by like you know just like sort of being in that art so uh i'm curious how you come to terms with evil or if that's like something that you think about at all okay well to, to start the idea that you're endorsing evil by playing metal is completely fatuous is is raiders of the lost ark endorsing evil because there are nazi characters in it no <laughs> I, I mean the, the point is like you make a movie about world war ii mm-hmm. are you pro-nazi like because they are characters in the story that you're telling i mean mm-hmm. so yeah these these um these questions are not easy and i think in terms of uh we're, what what we're i think maybe what we're really getting to here is is the being able to separate the art from the artist conversation mm-hmm. and i think the bottom line is that's a personal that's a personal decision that's made every second um, it's not anything that anybody has to be hardline about. Um, and it, and basically it's impossible to be hardline about, because if we really, if we're saying that you have to agree morally with every single artist whose art you experience, then you just might as well experience no art. Are, are you going to take the time to research every single person and the mental state they were in when they made every single work that you feel like checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's ridiculous. Um, now, there's examples where I feel like we all tend to agree that it's okay to experience that one's art. How about somebody like Bach? Mm-hmm. I don't know that much about him specifically as a guy, but I do know that he had like 50 kids, or True, yeah. 20 or whatever it was. Um, and that he was employed by the church and that he was living in the, uh, 17th and 18th century, right? Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> 1600s, I think. I have so many friends that oh. are into Bach and I just, uh, I'm never going to retain the specifics. Well, my, my point being, he was living at a time where you can be pretty damn sure he was racist. You can be pretty damn sure he was, uh, sexist, mis- misogynist. Just the fact that he was pumping out that many kids and made that much work <laughs> means he probably wasn't really taking care of his kids that much. Yeah. So probably not a great dad. Um, are we gonna are we gonna write off all that music? I don't know. To somebody, maybe that's like enough of like, oh god, yeah, what a shithead. I can't listen to his stuff. But for most people, it was a, it was it was long enough ago that it seems distant enough that we don't. Mm -hmm. we don't care the same way okay but what about bill cosby that's more recent that Mm -hmm. really stings and it's especially stings because his whole persona that he presented was like basically like the exact opposite of who he really was Mm -hmm. so you're presenting this family friendly like you know morally upstanding guy who is actually a serial rapist. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if the Cosby show is still on TV or not, but like for me, yeah, it might be a little tough to watch his stand up now. 
um, just because that's that's so recent and and it and it feels like you know I it, it I can relate to people who say like no fuck it I can't listen to a Burzum album because this guy's such a sh- shithead racist. Um, to me, it's like yeah, with Bill Cosby, yeah, it might be tough for me to watch that, but 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 for whatever reason, when I started listening to Burzum, I don't think I was even aware that he was this crazy white supremacist. I knew that he was a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Charles Manson's a murderer. People like his music. So anyway, I'm just trying to say that at that time, when I was listening to his stuff, for me, the fact that he killed his bandmate didn't, didn't like disgust me enough to not check out the music. And I checked it out and fell in love with the music. And it's Mm -hmm. music that I still love as much as I hate the man. And and when I hear the stuff now, maybe it's like it's not quite like Bill Cosby, but it's not really like Bach either. It's like maybe somewhere in between. That's just all. It just it's like I don't think you can make hard and fast rules about this stuff. Um, it's a really personal thing, and 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 yeah, I think it's a no brainer to not make decisions that might like financially support somebody who's an active uh, bigot. Mm-hmm or or misogynist or something sure but getting back to your original question yeah just playing metal just playing death metal doesn't mean that you support evil doesn't support mean you support racism misogyny any of those things um and even if you're a brutal death metal band with lyrics about the rape and kill and killing of somebody does that mean that you support those things in the same way that movies all the time have rape and murder in them. Mm-hmm. And Martin Scorsese isn't like pulled out as being like a horrible person. His movies are violent as fuck. And we're just like, oh, mm-hmm. what, a, what a wonderful acting. You know, it's, I guess like, so, you know, it's like, yeah, making music and making an album is not far from telling a story in a, in, in a movie. Um, yes, there's ways that you can present it where it's very clearly that and where it's not and there's all this gray area so i grant i grant everybody that that we're all swimming around in this gray area and it's not always easy to navigate but i i for sure don't think you can make hard and fast rules about that right it, the the way that this comes up in my mind is like uh like i feel like all the shade that is thrown at liturgy for like whatever like perceived senses of like authenticity like for like i feel like not being evil and problematic enough as a black metal band like you know just like if you look in the comments like on any video like it's just like i mean i don't know if it's just transphobia manifesting uh but like no it was way it was way before that i don't think it i think i mean because yeah that's pretty recent relatively to the liturgy they've been getting hate since the beginning um and it's really funny you mentioned them because now we're talking about the same type of a similar type of backlash but to somebody who's like the opposite yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of close-minded. This is somebody who's just like, look, I have this like weird take on metal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very unique. It's like really intellectual. It's like way out of left field. I'm really passionate about it. Here you go, guys. And everyone's just like, oh, I'm so offended that you could right. that you could <laughs> rattle the the um the the uh, the foundations of this style that I identify myself with. It's just like, fuck off, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. Like, if you don't like the art, 
you don't have to experience it. It's like, this is all choose your own adventure. Nobody is. Right, right, right. It's not like fucking, you know, the New York Times is ramming liturgy down everyone's throats. It's an obscure metal band. <laughs> um, it, so the, like, the idea that anybody could get that upset about somebody's like artistic statement that doesn't have anything to do with like a social, like political standpoint is just fucking hilarious to me that you could get that upset. That's just like, well, but, but metal was this for me. And now you're making me think about it differently. It's just like, yeah. that's really all that's happening was you made somebody think, Oh God, poor, <laughs> poor you. <laughs> uh, I guess I asked this question, like, uh, you know, I mentioned the whole, like, uh, vegan animal rights thing. Like, there's a, a writer that I like, uh, Brian Tomasic, who wrote this essay that's basically like, uh, should we have moral considerations for NPCs in video games? And, like, it's a beautiful essay, and, like, he's gotten so much uh, shit for it because it's, like, kind of absurd. But, like, uh, I mean, like, he's being kind of fringe in this way of just saying, like, you know, like, in some way we are, like, you know, microscopically endorsing, like there are these little microscopic endorsements of violence in just like, you know, playing video games that involve like going around shooting people. And so like, uh, I mean, like, I, it sounds ridiculous. Sure, I, but... I think about that. I should, I think about that shit for sure. Um, I mean, I, uh, I don't play video games anymore. It's not since I was a kid, but you know, I watch movies mm-hmm. and like we were talking about, I mean, movies are so often violent and, and, and the, the number of people that just get shot in any kind of movie at any given second, you're just, it's like, I was having this conversation with McMaster. It's like, how, how many people have you seen die in your life? Yeah. I've seen zero. Yeah. Same personally. here. Um, yet. I, I'm just going to pull out a random number, but like, let's say 70% of the movies out there have people dying. I don't whatever, just mm-hmm. some percentage. And it's, it's, it's par for the course. It's just, no. And in a way, that's not uncool because people are dying all the time in the world. And if the point of a movie is to tell a story, to be an aesthetic experience, um, to be a piece of art, then the fact that people die in them is like, okay, yeah, that's like a part of reality. So why would we like withhold that from our arts? You know, it's mm-hmm. like, People being loving and people being nasty are both things that happen in the universe. So both of those things are welcome in 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 our artistic expressions, right? Um, so yeah, it's like I don't I don't know what the answer to that is because yeah, it's like I see so many. I, I hate violence. Like I'm 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 like I'm kind of of the opinion. I'm I'm also vegetarian and currently back to vegan again and. Super pro animal rights. Like I, I, I don't. I basically believe animals should not be farmed. Period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, yeah. In in the 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 violence that's sort of like par for the course in video games and in in, in in movies, it's not the same thing as violence in reality. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer there is. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's is it is it like whittling down our uh, disgust of, 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 of killing, you know, mm-hmm. no, I'd be just as disgusted to see someone killed in front of my eyes, no matter how many movies I've seen. So I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is weird, you know, cause it's like, yeah, probably my favorite movie out there is alien, 
and really that's just it's just a movie about an animal killing a bunch of people and then at the end the animal gets killed oh great yeah what a what a stirring wonderful inspiring story no it's it's nothing but horrible but what i can take away from it is just like there's this there's this hubris of humans that we can control anything mm-hmm. and all it takes is just this one fucking animal that is just like no humans yeah. humans are, are are nothing compared to this <laughs> thing that just has like slightly better survival uh um, mechanisms and and our great wonderful overdeveloped brain can't do shit just because this thing is is just stronger and faster than us that's it you know so that's like that's a great profound deep thing to take away from the movie alien when really it's like a movie about people getting chased in the dark and, and murdered yeah so it's like you can you can take a beautiful maybe beautiful is the wrong word but like a uh like a, a profound statement or something that makes you like reconsider the, the, the reality you live in from that story, that, that, that tale, uh, you know, like, like I'm, I'm thinking about it as like Gilgamesh or Beowulf or something, that epic tale of alien. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, there's intellectual value in it. There's emotional value in it, even though we can look at it as like, okay, this is just a series of, of violence. And and that's not so great to to experience. Um, this uh, this guy mentioned that he you know came back from this like meditation retreat and he had a new appreciation for horror movies uh, afterwards because like he had be- basically been like meditating on stuff that's like you know uh, uh, coming to terms with mortality and stuff and so like he was like oh I've never enjoyed horror movies but now I see that part of their effect is to sort of like make you face mortality and so like there's a certain potency sure. there that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and also like the idea of experiencing these emotions that would usually be the most negative we can imagine and transmuting them into like a mm-hmm. wonderful artistic aesthetic experience. Like that's pretty cool. Like if we can take something as awful as death and murder and use that to create like a work of art where like I come away from watching alien for the 50th time and I'm just like, what a great movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess like, there, there's some element of like maybe facing your shadow self or something like that. Like the darkness, like uh, the dark side of metal, I feel like is partially just that, like, you know, facing the shadow self. In terms of the subject matter, yeah. In terms, because because I feel like th- this is another, I think, important distinction. So like, yeah, with the subject matter of metal, that's kind of like the violent movies and stuff like that, where it's, it, you know, it is a depiction of violence, but there's just like so much more going on there than it being just like, hey, violence, that's it. But with metal, it's music. So we have sort of two things operating in tandem. We have just the sound, we just, just the sonic experience. Mm-hmm. And then we have the ex- the extra musical stuff, the lyrics, the album cover, the, the the stuff that makes you think of things in reality. But music itself, just sound. This is why I love music so much, or one of the reasons. It's like the only art form I can think of that is 100% abstract. There isn't any reference. Every visual art, even if it's an, ab- if, even if it's an abstract painting, you look at a Jackson Pollock, Maybe you don't see trees and mountains, but you see splats of paint in a in a triangle, in a in a, a whatever. 
what do you, how, how can you similarly describe music? You can't. Mm-hmm. We need to invent things like math to be able to describe it mm-hmm. um, and put it on a grid and on a staff to say that that's the note G and whatever. But that's, that's not what it is. That's right, just right. how we're describing. That's yeah. like a totally separate system imposed over this thing that just exists. So sound is like sound and music are the only art form where there's no peer, there's no like, I get, I take in the work and then I like apply a filter to it and then experience it. There's none, the filter doesn't exist. It's just going straight in and we're feeling one way or another about it. There was so, a, I, the, this guy that I interviewed, uh, Micah Silver, he uh, wrote this book on, I guess, the philosophy of audio. And so he was saying that uh, uh, sound or like, music and audio and all that is so temporary social architecture is constructed out of air which is kind of interesting Ooh, I, like that. That's yeah. cool. I mean it's a very like you know woo, but uh yeah 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 i think that that's kind of like the best we could do to, to to put it in a in a framework i mean and that's still kind of a weird abstract thing to say mm-hmm. so it's like yeah when i hear you know any any piece of music um it's just i'm just like ah that just makes me happy or irritated or sad and it's not even those the emotions aren't that simple with music you're getting into all the impossible to name emotions mm-hmm. um not just happy happy sad right. mad hungry you know what i mean like and that's why music is so fucking awesome is because it's this there's this whole emotional world which is impossible to really put into words and now we have this art form which speaks, it's just this direct mainline interface into that world that we can just experience. And we can experience all these emotions that have no names and are in these weird gray areas between loneliness and happiness and sadness, you know, and aren't even any of those things. They're just this thing that's impossible to put into words. Um, so getting back to what you were saying about metal, because metal's music, there's this part of it which to me is kind of like the whole thing because the extra musical stuff is cool but it's the extra musical stuff and it interacts a little bit but more or less you're just left with the music and that has nothing to do with violence or misogyny or racism or anything it has nothing to do with anything Mm -hmm. it's just completely abstract it's the sound (laughs) it's literally like air doing this right 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 that's it so I think it's kind of, you know, going way back, like, no, there's nothing, there's no correlation between evil and metal, zero. In terms of the sound, if we're just talking about the music, if we're not talking about lyrics and album covers and stuff. If we're just talking about the music, there is zero shared mm-hmm. between those worlds. So, you know, for a lot of people out there, myself included, who like, aren't getting into metal and aren't sticking with it because of the extra musical stuff you 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 know whatever like we said maybe you come for the masks but you stay for the music right Mm -hmm. the people that really get into it really get dedicated to it it's just because this is this really fertile compelling multifaceted world of of music um i mean even just getting into the brutal death metal world like that this is this like really bizarre 
form of experimental music that's just not called that mm -hmm. that's going right now internationally all over the world there's bands doing this style that's like this music that's sort of been impossible to, to to comprehend and everyone's pushing further and further and making it crazier and more insane and more of this like ecstatic experience um and uh it really doesn't make any difference that there's like a a, a beast or like a room full of dead bodies on the cover <laughs> than if it was like a photograph of a mountain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not saying that extra musical stuff has no impact, but if we artificially remove it for a second, like there's, there's still this like infinite universe we're left with when we're just talking about the sound itself. And that has nothing to do with any of the stuff we're talking about, nothing to do with evil. Just pretend for a second, like, I think this is not that far from reality in the example. Let's say you don't speak English and most lyrics are in English and metal. Like even the bands that are from Indonesia, most of these bands are singing in English. What if you have no concept of English? So you have no idea what any of the band names mean, what any of the lyrics mean, what any of the album titles mean. That person is going to get just as deep. Mm -hmm. into the sure. music as, as I did because it's like 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 I was saying for me I didn't get into it because of that stuff as a kid I thought all that stuff was stupid I was never into I, like that actually probably prevented me from getting into metal until I was a little bit older because I thought that whole horror movie world was lame like I wasn't interested in that I was like I said I was like more of a sci-fi kind of guy so I got into like Prague and King Crimson and classical music because that that seemed to like fit that more, but then that gross dissonant Prague had made such a such an influx into uh, into the world of death metal that it was like I couldn't ignore that world after a while, and then and then metal really opened up for me. Mm -hmm. Um, with this current project that I'm working on, Illuminavist, uh, like I I feel like the subject matter I'm going for, like I'm trying to like stay true to my whole thing of veganism and all, but like make it as bleak as possible because like there is real world stuff that is as horrific as any malignancy cover um you know so like um like i was watching this animal welfare lecture yesterday about um basically like you know having to exterminate and call animals in norway um because of this like protein folding disease and so it's like that's crazy that the altruistic thing to do in this situation is to kill and call animals for the well-being of the you know, it's, it's just like really i mean that's 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 fucking human as fuck right there yeah and it, it's metal <laughs> as fuck too uh so yeah um so uh by the way you know if I, found, you... I found this i found this picture uh the other i was kind of like searching around for um images to maybe like manipulate and use in in some album artwork and stuff and i came across a photo of this um horse mass grave in china from a long time ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago i mean you know back when animal sacrifice was uh was normal yeah um and yeah it was just like one of those things where you just yeah you see this photo of just like all these horse skeletons just like neatly lined up and they're you know these big animals like i'm not going to say that the horse has more value than the smaller animal but it's just it really hits you when you see all these animals that are like larger than humans, like lined up in a mass grave. And it's just like, yeah, that was just to like, because they thought that would lead to like more crops or better luck. And so, I mean, it's just like, that wasn't even because there was a disease and because it was like, you know, some way too heavy handed way of dealing with a, 
situation. It wasn't even that. It was just like completely imaginary. Just like, yeah. nope, genocide. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, man. That makes me think of the mink thing in, uh, I think, Denmark uh, with COVID, you know, where they just had to essentially kill, you know, tons and tons of mink uh, because of COVID spreading. Uh, but, I mean, we don't have to stay in this dark territory, though. Um, so uh, I was talking to uh, you know, Charlie Looker on his podcast, actually, um, and he, it, the conversation eventually led to basically who fucks more black metal people or death metal people, just... <laughs> I, I, it was just a fun as like a fun as whole conversation. Sounds like a very Charlie Looker uh, direction. Yeah, and he was describing the whole black metal thing as like kind of like in terms of like no fap or like a semen retention, and uh, I thought it was very funny. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about it. It's like shit. I need to ask Colin Marston about this. Uh, so who? And you can rephrase this question however you want, but I mean, who do you think uh, is more sex sexually gratified, the death metal community or the black metal community? <laughs> And you could say that's just a bogus question if you want, but I think it's funny. I mean, it's not a bogus question. It's a, you know, I suppose it's a legitimate question. Do I know the answer to it? Um, I'm going to say not one or the other, because I think there's really like, there's as many um, people who are going out there to get laid as there are basement dwelling nerds like myself mm-hmm. who aren't doing that um in in across all styles of music so i guess yeah like, okay so not in who, that, in that, sorry go ahead. It, it, maybe not who fucks more but uh just like who has a healthier uh sexual relationship with themselves <laughs> yeah yeah that. i mean once again i think i think you can't uh yeah. i i don't i don't think death or black is going to be a, a, any kind of a major deciding factor in that maybe that's just because i feel sort of like equal like a equal amount like an equally compelling draw of both styles to myself maybe if i like myself tended towards one more than the other i'd have like more of an opinion about it but then it would be like a pretty like a um biased opinion anyway yeah, I guess I was characterizing the death metal world as kind it's of a like, it's a hilarious question. Let's yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like the death metal world is like very like pizza and beer sort of like vibes, and so like I just well, imagine that's, that's the thing is that yeah, that's the rap that it gets, and maybe the black metal world you think of people with like you know cool like tight pants fashion and stuff more, so you might want to think that it's that. But the thing is like I I spend so much time listening to this like really fucked up. Um, you know, just like kids making black metal at home in their bedroom kind of stuff. Like all this stuff I just find on Bandcamp where it's like some new band that started two years ago that already has like seven albums mm-hmm. and the, and the kids like 20. I mean, yeah, no, they're not, they're not in the leather pants getting laid <laughs> side of black metal. You know, they're, they're much more close to what we might think of as the pizza and beer <laughs> death metal kid and the sweatpants. So, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. I think it's at this point those those ideas about subgenres of metal I think are a little bit out of date. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we're never even really true to begin with, but at this point there's like I think with with having the internet going full blast now for about 20 years, it you have every single 
sub style of every kind of music at the same time. Yeah. Instead of like with metal, for example, there would maybe be periods of five or 10 years where like death metal was, was more consumed than black metal or vice versa. But now it's like, no, you have every single kind of death metal and every single right. kind of black metal all operating at a hundred percent capacity. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's like now the cool thing about that is just, yeah, anybody can get their shit out there instantaneously. You don't even need a record label. And the downside is that maybe everything is a little more disorganized and over oversaturated, but I don't know. I think it's to me, the upside way outweighs the downside. And also it, it uh, has evened out the black metal, death metal, who's getting laid more conversation. Yeah. So I think at this point, it's just like, no one. one's getting laid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's that's great. Uh, or, or or everyone. Uh, so in uh, in a limit of this, basically, like part of what I'm trying to do is uh, catalog all these different types of riffs and try to like establish different parameters to them so that I can have it be like automated and implemented by a computer. So I mean, eventually, I can just press the go button and have a million albums generate, and then it's just up to me to learn the guitar parts. But uh, I, basically, I guess like. You know, you I'm sure have like a sort of postmodern, but also like enlightened sense of genre. Like, you know, the, the genre question in metal is kind of like stupid at the end of the day. But like, you kind of have to have that conversation anyway. You know, you can't just be like, oh, there are no genres. It's like, you know, there there's a quality to black and music versus death metal versus you know grind, whatever. They all have their kind of like individual characteristics. But so in cataloging these riff types. Um, I'm curious if we could sort of brainstorm all like, as many different types of categories that you think of, and if anybody you know who's listening to this in the comments wants to add anything, and uh, you know, then that would be interesting. But you know, like you have your chuggies, you know, you have your like your sort of like black metal like minor chords movement in parallel. You have like various tremolo stuff. Um, you have like kind of mashuga isms. You have um, so I guess like just like how many options do you feel like there are or just like if you start throwing them at me i'd love to hear where your mind goes yeah uh, in, infinite infinite because the thing is if we yeah if we start trying to name all the kinds of riffs where there there is there is not an end to that because maybe if we even start getting into the ultra specific it's like why is that why is that less valid than a riff that more people play you know a kind <laughs> of riff that more people play and a kind of riff that fewer people play are this have the same degree of validity. So yeah, I don't know. To me, to me, uh, to me, it's endless. Um, in terms of your, what you said about, about acknowledging the genres, I'm, I'm right there with you on that because I feel like my like resting state as a human maybe tends to be one where I'm not thinking so much about genre. It's just like, well, whatever, this is the musical idea I want to do. That's mm -hmm. it. But um, especially over the last year with the pandemic and me sort of switching to making tons of solo albums and doing mm -hmm. lots of like collaborations and doing all these albums that aren't really like bands that get together and practice, but just like, let's make a record together or let me make one by myself. Through the process of that, I've actually been interfacing way more with being like oh i'm going to make a mm -hmm. dsbm album like something so specific which i never would have dreamed of doing 10 years ago 
I'm now kind of excited to do. And I think that that's partially because I've been operating for so long with Behold the Octopus and Dysrhythmia, which are really like hard to classify bands. I mean, it's like they're, you can't even necessarily even say they're metal bands. I remember having this argument with my first girlfriend back in the day all the time. She's like, Behold the Octopus is a prog band. And I'm like, no, we're a metal band. And it's just like, well, we're both and we're neither and we're whatever. Mm-hmm. That band is coming to music without considering the genre question. So mm-hmm. we just ended up where we were. But with something like that Earth Shroud album that I think I sent you, mm-hmm. I was just like, my idea is to make a depressive suicidal black metal album. What would my version of that be like? Mm-hmm. So I think that's it's it's actually not necessarily like creatively limiting to be like, yes, I'm this hyper-specific genre or I'm, I've never considered it. You can be super creative both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy, and I think I used to think this way, that if you started considering the subgenres, you were like painting yourself into a corner that was sort of at odds to creativity. But as we all know, being artists, you need to limit your your rules, not the rules, but you need to limit yourself somewhat when you're making a piece of art. If you have every option of everything at the same time, then you kind of can't ever finish something. You need to kind of like put it in some sort of a artificial framework, at least for the time being, just to make the work. Yeah. So I think I just kind of opened up and being like, yeah, whatever. Like that used to give me a bad taste in my mouth, but fuck it, let me just Mm -hmm. try that and see see where it leads not even like try to approach this specific genre and make it more interesting like not even going that far just being like all right what's my what's my take on dsbm what would that be like let's try it why not i've got the time um so yeah i i really feel like uh i've come around to not hating on the the genre stuff as much i think it does have that effect still where like maybe maybe it has that negative effect for some younger musicians and it's often very common in metal where you get it in your head that to be artistically successful, you have to kind of pick your Mm -hmm. subgenre and stick to those, those rules. Um, And the only thing that I take issue with there is, is the word have to, there's the the words have to, you know, it's like, yeah, you can do that or not. And how good your stuff is has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with how good your ideas are. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not impossible to make a compelling work these days that's totally in the broke classical style. Mm-hmm. You know, even though those those rules are five hundred years old, no, you could still do it. Why not? Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, it, the thing that you say about the rules like makes me think. I heard somebody say a quote that was like, you know, if you don't have any rules, it's like playing tennis without the net. And so, like, you know, you need to have some parameters. But you know, in the case of like Baroque, and the parameters could be really loose. That's the thing is, you could have like that much net, right? And mm-hmm. that's still something. You know what I mean? Like at least tell yourself the piece is an hour long and have no other rules. You know what I mean? Like you have to. Right, right. There's some parameters at some point that have to be defined. So with like uh, with Baroque music, you know, you could like I feel like codify that into some sort of thing that's implementable by uh, a computer. And I, I guess I'm just trying to like. I'm curious just how many, or not how many, but like if 
you were to brainstorm up different like categories of things uh like within black or uh death metal or like what are some extra riff types that uh, like i'm trying to make an exhaustive list I'm, I'm very much an exhaustive person that way like um like what are the sort of like main categories of black metal riff types that you would uh characterize by a certain sort of like even if it's just a, like a small thing like uh okay i think i actually might have to grab the guitar to do this because just trying to like think about it is is hard um so you say so yeah if we're just talking about types of black metal riffs mm-hmm. um then i suppose you have you know your single note tremolo right you have chordal tremolo and that is often power chords. It can also be parallel minor, that's common. And not the same chord all the time. Right, that's, I just combine them. So there's those, there's, like we were talking DSBM, there's the, there's the arpeggiator, you know, the, or, oh, that's major, so that's bad, but. Mm-hmm. whatever like that that kind of vibe um you have the combination of the two like this is a uh the kotnik from uh guard i feel like is the best at doing the it's tremolo but with chords um oh, dang. there's a little bit of that in some burzum too um what else? Uh, well, yeah, palm mutes, I guess, are more common in death metal, but not not excluded from black metal. Um, um, I can't, th- you know, whatever, just something that would have. Whatever, so those, so, so palm muting's welcome. I suppose you don't hear riffs that are all palm mutes as common that's maybe something more reserved for death metal you wouldn't hear like a uh, you wouldn't hear that kind of a, a, but even with some you know because that's the thing is it like sure you could you could define all the types of riffs that are black metal but then you have a band that's black slash death right and so they're accessing all that shit so it's mm-hmm. just, that's kind of why i was just like yeah this is just like an this is an exercise that'll just go on forever because it's, right, right. it's there's sort of an infinite number of types of riffs and you can sort of mix and match however you, you want. Cause even if you decide that's only part of that style, you can have somebody who's like, well, I'm both styles. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, what, what are some other, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the types of riffs um, that might be, differentiate like doom and death mm-hmm. might only have to do with with tempo right um, not actually with speed so you know um how would you distinguish like sludge and doom uh in some sort of technical sense that's that's never a differentiation that i i remember i was having a, a conversation with my, my old friend george about that he was like well sludge is this and doom is that and i was just kind of like i to me, I've never differentiated them so much. I guess when people say doom, I tend to picture more European influenced mm-hmm, gothic right. type stuff. And maybe when someone says sludge, I tend to picture more American uh, uh, hardcore influenced stuff like 
mm-hmm. totally. I hate God, or or even I mean they're not American, but like uh, corrupted uh, from Japan. Um, something like yeah, they're definitely doomed, but they're all they also could be thought of as just like a really slow crust punk band. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. So yeah, what was or, what was the other part of the question? I mean, I guess um, maybe to switch the question up slightly um, to think about specifically just like collections of pitches. So like, um, I'm like big into Elliot Carter, for instance, the classical composer. Love Elliot Carter. And um, like, I, I guess like the way that he thinks in this sort of like set theoretic way, like I got his harmony book and it's just like every single combination of things. And like, he's looking at the interval vectors and all this shit. And so like, um, I think that's really interesting. But then you get like, I feel like black metal is like almost more like, you know, mostly modal, kind of like parallel moving around modal stuff. And then like death metal seems like the best vehicle for like chromaticism. And, yeah, um, that's, I think that's, that's definitely true. Um, sure, you have both and both, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. I think maybe a more defining characteristic of, of death versus black is that more ch- chromatic. Because in, in slammy, technical, brutal stuff, you have it, you know, the, Right, that's all chromatic, and then in um, more incantationy, or even deeds of flesh, or something more of a tremolo death metal band, you know. So definitely chromatic. I, you get it in black metal too, but I think you're right. It, it, there's more of a, uh, you know, emphasis on minor, um, mm-hmm. parallel minor, uh, di- just straight up diatonic, mm-hmm. too. Um, often yeah modal for sure um in a way i feel like almost that that's like a better way to define those two styles than anything else we've talked about mm-hmm. because really it's just like you know leaving aside the the like we like we said leaving aside the album cover and the lyrics and the song titles all you're left with is the sounds and and and, and yeah that relationship of that harmonic relationship that the styles have, I think defines it more than anything else. You can have shit that's slow in both styles, stuff that's fast in both styles, mm-hmm. stuff that's super ambient in both styles, stuff that's super cleanly studio produced in both styles. But we wouldn't call one of those chromatic palm beauty riffs black. I don't think anybody. Right, right. So, I don't think so, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that is actually like, we're getting maybe more close to the, the heart of it. And I, I guess like, a in terms of like the album covers and stuff like black metal, I feel like always is going to have like this sort of more like serious, uh, poetic vibe, but like, you know, death metal might be a little bit more campy or kind of like over the top gory. And it's like, more, yeah, um, more, more cartoony. yeah. Yeah. Either more cartoony or maybe more like photorealistic violent kind of stuff. But that's actually, I feel like you're, you're more in the grindcore world once you, and that's something that's even harder to describe because that actually has like aspects of, doom black and death mm-hmm. and also kind of like sort of predates some of those styles sort of doesn't i mean this is just all you're getting into that like ethnomusicology uh yeah. music history stuff which is like kind of interesting but at, the, at a certain point <laughs> i'm just like oh why do we spend all our time talking about this <laughs> yeah um it, yeah i guess like the limitivist stuff i i was calling grindcore because i wanted a way to like be like oh yeah i'm going to be more like the guy that's going to talk about veganism and like you know like i feel like if you go to a grindcore show you're more likely to be in a basement where there's like some sort of consent workshop going on uh just that's my experience from like uh being in tacoma in seattle back in the day but uh 
because uh, I mean, a big a big part of grindcore is, is is just coming from punk and hardcore, yeah. and so those those parts of it. But the you know the other thing to remember about grindcore is like, you know, the birth of grindcore is like, okay, Napalm Death, sure, you have mm-hmm. that that punk trajectory there. But then they basically became a death metal band almost. And then another band that was called grindcore back in the day was Swans. Interesting. I don't know. Swans, which is has is basically not even a metal, you know, right. not much to do with metal at all, is only slow, does not have any of that punk um community vibe. Right. Or like, you know what I mean? It it has the punk aesthetic of like we don't give a fuck and this is gonna like we're here to like destroy your body <laughs> yeah like that's kind of punk you know in its sense of just like yeah being kind of anti-music in a way like that's per- that's punk but aside from that i mean it's just like mm-hmm. you know that's part of the birth of, that's why grindcore i feel like is so hard to talk about because it's like okay well that's just as much grindcore as as napalm death as um drop dead you know which is the, like the, the vegan example, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like it's hard, it, it's, it's hard to set those defining things. So yeah, it's like, that's why I almost like just talking about the, the riffs better mm-hmm. because it's, it's almost just like, okay, yeah, we can, we can kind of agree. There's not as much gray area. <laughs> almost. Um, and I guess we could expand the riff question to just like, uh, like, you know, you don't really have like verse chorus, that type of thing as much. Like the structures are so much, uh looser in metal it seems on like you know pop music or whatever but uh like in terms of like types of structures or like formal elements you know um i guess like how would you think about that in terms of a few categories uh, for either death or black or any metal yeah i think you're right i think death death metal has the closest uh in common with classical music in the sense that it tends to have the most variety in terms of song structures and lengths of songs and mm-hmm. um you have stuff that's like the most simple and the most complicated and 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 we can agree that they're all death metal mm-hmm. uh black metal sure there's this there's this uh technical black metal wing i think but you almost start to get into some of that death metal territory mm-hmm. when you're when you're there i mean yeah maybe if you kept maybe if you have an example like death omega or something mm-hmm. where like right. yeah the tonalities are still very much black metal but they have that kind of technicality of death metal. There's a gray area there, but yeah, I think um, grindcore. Yeah, would tend to have the most simple, most song-based structures, and plenty of death metal has that too, and plenty of black metal. But you you have more, I think, experimentation in death and black, and maybe the most in maybe the most in death metal. Um, mm-hmm. The most variety, the most different. Uh, yeah ways it can sound or in terms of structure specifically the most different types of structures for sure yeah Mm -hmm. um it's funny so i i went to school for jazz guitar and like i sort of part of me died inside from doing that but uh like uh, i guess like there's this underlying sort of conservatism to the jazz world that i don't know if you have encountered but like for instance i i feel like I recently got a seven string guitar. I I feel like it was like a big deal for me to like be like, oh yeah, then I can like be a seven string guitarist. And like everybody in the jazz world, I feel like is just like, no, you need to be playing like a hollow body. And like, it's like very like preconceived notions about what you're allowed to do, which is kind of ridiculous, but like metal. It's a a style of music with a, with a really 
a much, well, not as much for guitar, which is kind of funny, but it's got a way longer tradition than metal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's going to make, the longer anything is around, the more traditionalist people are going to get about it. Mm-hmm. Like, pick your subject matter. <laughs> right. I guess just like, it, uh, death metal seems like it's very progressive in that way. Just it's, it's ready to take on any new technology. It's, you know, willing to add, uh, you know, new strings willy nilly, just like, you know, eight strings are commonplace now. And, um, I guess actually, well, that- I, think it, I think it's both. I think you, you, you really have that whole traditionalist wing of, of death metal in full fucking force. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is coming back to like death metal, just maybe being a slightly larger container than some of these other subgenres. Like there's maybe more subgenres of death metal than other mm-hmm. metal or something. Um, or maybe not just the fact that there's more subgenres, but I think there's just more variety in things that we could agree on are, are that. So you're right. You are getting more people experimenting, but you're also getting more people not experimenting and being like, fuck you for experimenting. Right. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so like, you know, a lot of people will see you play the war guitar and like, I feel like for some people it might register as like, that's just crazy. Whoa. Uh, but then like, you know, the fact that you play bass and Gorguts and like, uh, you know, guitar and Kralis and all these different things, like you have this sort of like, I feel like, uh, non-allegiance to number of strings and like uh it's like the war guitar kind of breaks the paradigm for like expectations of instrumentation so uh i guess like uh at the same time like yeah i think of like portal versus kralis and both seem to be working with 18 strings but uh you know like they have very different distribution of like the sound spectra and so like i'm curious how you think about like going from instrumentation and orchestration to sort of like taking up the same possible frequency spectrum that uh, anybody else would use regardless of instrument. Okay. So yeah, a a couple thoughts about that. Um, For one thing, just to be, just to be a little bit of a portal historian, um, (laughs) they've actually used six, seven and eight string. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the first album is six. The second album is seven. Uh, Vex, Swarth and Vexo Void are eight. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Ion, they went back to six string. And then the new album, which comes out next month, is back to seven. Um, so, yeah, they don't have a uh, particular allegiance to, right, to right. that either. Okay, so here's my other thing about... I actually pick up the guitar again for this. Um, the number of strings you have doesn't fucking matter. Right, right, right. Because you can tune your instrument however you want. So number of strings and range are not the same thing. And I think mm-hmm. that this is, people get it in their head, guitarists get it in their head that to be lower, you have to get a seven string. And then to be even lower, you have to get an eight string. No, you don't. So here's my tuning. I use a six string guitar. The high E is normal. The B is normal. The G is up a half step. Okay. Then I completely skip over the D string and I go straight to the A. And then I have the normal E, which would be the lowest string on a standard tune guitar. And then under that, I have a low octave bass string. So this, that's actually an octave lower than the, that would be the second lowest open string on a normal bass, is this now. Why, I guess I shouldn't ask why in a, like, a way like that, but like, what's the G sharp for with the G string? Like, why, why up a half step there? There's no why. This is just a this is just a, a tuning that I happened upon when I was 17, and I just stuck with it. Okay, interesting. 
Um, but what I find funny is that this six string guitar has more range than a seven string guitar mm -hmm. because I actually, a seven string guitar ends at B. So I have B flat and A. So I have two, two more notes than you would have with one more string. Mm -hmm. And if I just decided to tune it differently, I could have even more range if I wanted. Right. Another ironic thing about the war guitar is yes, it has 12 strings, but like 90% here, I'll grab it just to make it really obvious. So yeah. much of the range of the guitar side is already taken care of on the bass side. Mm -hmm. So check this out. The lowest, the lowest note you can play on the guitar side is the D a whole step below a standard six string guitar. So this is, this is the low E on a regular six string guitar. And I can do the E flat and the D. And I get a C sharp as the open string, but as you can see, you don't really use open strings on these instruments. Gotcha. You, you mute them out. Okay, so I've got D to D. That's my highest, highest note on the guitar. Um, and that's what, four octaves, I think? Um, this D here on the guitar side, on the bass side, is already here. So really, I just have, that's my uh, octave lower D. I have one octave and one half step lower on the bass than I do on the guitar. That's it. And the bass side, because it's tuned in fifths instead of fourths, the guitar side is fourths and the bass is upside down fifths. Mm. So my highest note on the bass side, check this out, is that high, which is only a minor third below the highest note on the guitar. So I basically, on my bass side, I have all the guitar plus another octave lower, basically. Mm -hmm. And then the guitar is just like that whole range again in a different tuning. Mm -hmm. So yeah, here you have an instrument with a zillion strings with lots of redundant range. And then just by taking out some of the redundancy on my six string guitar, I gave it more range than a seven string. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. So to me, it's not about, it's not about range. It's not about register. Mm -hmm. It's just different tunings lead to writing different things. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, I'm not somebody who likes changing my tuning. Like Kevin from Dysrhythmia, every time he writes a new song, it's in a different tune, basically. Mm -hmm. He has to like force himself to write two songs in the same tuning. So he's always having to bring tons of guitars on tour and retune between songs and stuff like that. Um, so I don't do that, but at the same time, my version of that is being like, okay, well, my guitar has this weird open extended range tuning. The war guitar has like cello tuning on one side, guitar tuning almost on the other side. And then my bass is a six string in all fourths. Mm -hmm. So that's cool because my bass side on war is upside down fifths. So it's very, very different style of playing bass on the war guitar than the regular bass. So that's kind of my version of having different tunings is having different instruments gotcha. um, that aren't all in the same tune. I, I forget what the term is. There's like a classical term. I think it's like scordatura or something. Um, oh, I don't know that one. I, I, that, that's probably not right, but uh, it's just kind of like the range of the instrument. And I feel like, you know, people are so stuck in like, I'm a guitarist and I play it this way with this many strings. And like, I imagine just in like what you just showed me, it's like, you've broken that conception of like, this is how guitarists do whatever. And so it's like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like the spectral composers, like uh, Tristan Mirai or like uh, Gerard Grise. Grise a little bit. And also uh, uh, Iancu Dimitrescu, I like a lot. 
that sort of like spectral stuff like uh i don't know just like the the to be you know focused on just like the uh, so i guess like the reason i asked this is because i i read this review of portal um that was you know based on one of their shows uh and like the guy was like i have like you know all these reasons that you know portal isn't using their like crazy rig of eight string guitars right like here's how you have like a better uh way to sound even heavier and it's like uh, nobody's asking your opinion dude but like uh like i guess you know uh, people see the eight string guitars they see mashuga and they're like oh like very focused on the instrument and like the tools that are being used but like at the end of the day it's like you're hearing the frequencies you know and like the sound spectrum so um i don't know like how how do you think about filling that out I and mean, since you obviously do so much like uh engineering and uh have a sense of that whole world um how do you fill out the frequency spectrum uh sort of regardless of instrument yeah a lot a lot lot of interesting stuff to talk about there so so first of all i will point out that i I kind of can't (laughs) forgive mashuga a little bit for the way they use the a string because it's just like guys they they are exactly the example where you could have just tuned your six string right, guitar right. lower because all their riffs are on the lowest string or two. It's just right. Like, <laughs> they could use a one so, string. <laughs> like, it's so frustrating. It's just like you just have all these six other strings you're not using. At least Portal use all the strings of the guitar. Mm-hmm. Like I just I do, that's the thing that drives me the most crazy with people that are into seven and eight string is if your whole idea of the guitar is that it's just the lowest string then you might as well just get a fucking one string guitar. Yeah. And then it's like a little more respectable. Yeah. Um, or just like, why is every riff on one string? Like, can't, there's, this idea, there's so much other real estate on an instrument to explore. The totally. idea that you just be so limited um, is, is just, I don't know. To me, it's just like a little intellectually frustrating. But at the same time, I am one of those people who's just kind of like, well, yeah, none of it, ma- none of it matters. The tools right. don't matter. None of it does. It's mm-hmm. all about just what you make with it. And the music that Mashuga makes at this point in my life, I'm not that interested in it, but obviously it's compelling. And obviously it's had a huge impact on the world. And it, it had an impact on me as a younger person too. Um, but it's, it's definitely like successful, you know, in terms yeah. of like, they're making shit that they think is cool and lots of other people are like, yeah, that's the coolest shit ever. The fact that like, I'm just like, oh my God, you're not using all the strings of your guitar. It's like, it's fucking gross. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, it's even ridiculous for me to care about it. But um, being somebody, I think it's like the way I ended up with this extended range guitar tuning and the fact that I play bass, but I play six string. I've never played four string. I've always played six. And went to, and you know, I got, I've been playing war guitar since I was 14. So to me, guitar and bass, there's never been that separation. To me, they're mm-hmm. just all guitar. Gotcha. Um, and it's not that I don't respect bass players who are like bass player, bass players who are like fingers and really like play the role of the bass guitar as being like a supporting fundamental, you know, skeleton, but not a lead instrument, not a rhythm guitar. That's all great. I totally respect that. But that's just not the way I approach the instrument. I, mm-hmm. I usually approach all of those as some sort of a guitar. Mm-hmm. And my idea of guitar is that guitar can kind of be anything. Guitar can be low. It can be middle. It can be high. It can be rhythm. It can be lead. Um, there can be lots of tracks of it. It can be a little mini orchestra or it can be a solo instrument. 
guitar is such a great instrument and especially with electric guitar and, and effects and all that shit mm -hmm. um it's just an instrument with a lot of different possibilities and i think the fact that i'm like a recording guy and producer and all that stuff i'm always thinking about all of the different ways that everything can sound all the instruments in a, in a group so maybe i'm not saying i did this on purpose but maybe that's part of why i gravitated towards guitar or maybe why i stuck with it um, because I feel like it's got so many possibilities. And then over the last year, I've mostly been playing keyboards. Um, and I think for a similar reason, because I'm just like, oh, there's like, it can sound like fucking anything there, you know, with like a MIDI controller, there is no built-in sound. It's mm -hmm. just, it's just whatever you assign to it. So the sky's the limit with that shit. Um, and as somebody who's just always, like we talked about, I'm not a technique and a practicing guy. I'm like a making music guy. Mm -hmm. So I'm always just like, yeah, what's what's a new interesting sound or what's an old sound that I can use in a compelling way that I just thought of or whatever. So, yeah, I'm thinking in terms of like more a little bit more abstract, uh, just sonic building blocks. Mm -hmm. What are all the things that are available to me? Um, I even got this. Uh, here, I'll see if I can turn the camera around. This um, Simmons. Uh, drum kit mm -hmm. which i've been really enjoying recently because yeah it's like once again it's just an, an instrument that can have just like you can really stimulate the imagination mm -hmm. you can get all these different kinds of sounds out of it that other instruments can't do um sorry just plugging this back in here uh do you ever mess around with max msp not in a really long time, but uh, that was um, when I went to recording engineering school, um, we had a class where we covered Max MSP. And I think I used it to write one piece where I, I used it as a, as a, um, like a homemade ring modulator where I was able to like combine two different sonic sources and, and modulate them with each other through using MSP. But, um, but yeah, that was fucking, 20 years ago <laughs> or more but yeah oh actually you know one thing i'll mention there was this there's a program a lot like max msp called jsyn like the Just letter j and then syn so um this is actually one guy i wanted to bring up anyway because you do this algorithmic music yourself do you know nick didkowski no um not that i know Nick Dukovsky is, he's awesome. He's a guitar player and composer. His band that he's had since the 80s is called Dr. Nerve. Mm. And he pioneered, maybe he's not the first person to do this, but like in the 80s, he was writing software that would write music that the band would then learn. Mm -hmm. And the band was kind of like a uh, guitar, bass, drums, keyboards, and then always like a horn section. And so he'd write this stuff that sounds like really angular fucked up prog but like some of the stuff was written by him and some of the stuff was he wrote the computer program to write and then they, they would learn it mm -hmm. um so he's always been in in this algorithmic music zone and he wrote a program called j score which was to be used in tandem with j sin which j is for java so is this a java programming language that he and his friend phil burke uh, developed where JSON is basically like Max MSP, but written in Java. So it's, it looks the same. You're like, you make an oscillator and you connect it to a filter and 
that same kind of visual, like connecting things together, mm -hmm. like web look. So I could design like a synthesizer or a sampler or something in that, and then plug that into the J score program, which was just a traditional like Finale or Sibelius kind of scoring program, mm -hmm. but could access the synth sounds. And so um, that was actually like back in school when I was doing the, that composition class or whatever, which wasn't a class. It was just, you know, me and him. Um, he was like, oh yeah, here's this technology that me and my friend developed, write a piece with that. Um, so I remember I did one that was just in Jason, which was like the modulation thing. And then <clears throat> for some other pieces, um, I would design sounds in the MSP type program and then score out music and have it play those sounds. Actually, the first song on Skullgrid by Behold the Arctopus, which is a totally linear piece, um, was written as an electronic piece for that first. And then I adapted like the first half of the piece and we slowed it down because it was just unplayably fast. Uh, so yeah, so I, so I do have a little bit of experience in that that world but uh once again not in a, not in a long time i've since then i've kind of just been writing music the old-fashioned way <laughs> fair enough uh, uh question so i mean i know that you have written the like the behold stuff sort of score first and then you know like there's a whole video of that you know uh you talk about that and i'm curious how many of your projects do you notate how many do you not notate um like how do you sort of like go about communicating risks to each other Good. Uh, so interestingly, at this point, zero. Behold was the only... Started. Yeah, nothing is anymore for, for me. Um, Behold, in the beginning, we wrote music the normal rock band way. We'd write riffs. And it wasn't even like one of us writing an entire song. It was like, I have a riff, you have a riff. Often Mike would like start a song and then I would like write all the connecting pieces and sort of finish it. And that was like our first three songs. Then I got into the whole notation thing from uh i should i should totally shout out thought streams thought streams was this band that was like most people would say is like totally unlistenable it was like a combination of of like extreme death metal and like elliot carter okay <laughs> or milton davitt or something okay. um it was drum machine that. guitar bass and trumpet and my, my friend forbes graham was like a free jazz trumpet player uh, was the singer and trumpet player. And they would write the shit in notation first. And it was very influenced by this serialist 20th century stuff. And then they would learn it. And it was the most fucked up sounding stuff either. And they were also really silly dudes. So it had like a comedic aspect as well. Um, so that, I think that, and then maybe around that time was, was Z's too, mm, that right. were doing music that way. I can't remember if that was right I think that was maybe right after we started Arctopus, but just seeing another band of dudes, like they would actually read the sheet music with Arctopus. We always memorized mm -hmm. um, just because I can't sight read at all. Mm -hmm. I, I never developed that skill. So I have to memorize everything I play. And also the behold stuff is kind of too fast to sight read. Um, so yeah, I think thought streams was kind of like the, the kicking point and then maybe Z's kind of like even reinforced it. And um, I was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's take this approach to writing stuff where we don't write on the instrument. It's, we only kind of just write whatever ideas come into our head and we learn it after the fact. And that lasted all the way up through cognitive emancipation, which is our second to most recent. For the most recent album, I was like, 
I felt like it was that process was slowing us down too much in terms of being able to learn material. I would write stuff really fast and then it would just take like five years to, to right. learn. The stuff. Um, and also I would end up writing stuff, which was hard to play in ways which you wouldn't even predict. Mm -hmm. Not because the passage was too fast. No, because the fingering was awkward. So maybe I'm playing something that doesn't even sound that impressive, but just physically it's hard to get from here to there. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like I was always painting myself into a corner with that. So for the new album, I was like, fuck this. We're, we're changing the sound of the band already because I'm, I'm swapping out all the cymbals for percussion. The drummer's now gonna play with mallets and we're gonna have pitched percussion and all that stuff. <laughs> but also I'm gonna write everything on the instrument this time. So I just picked up the guitar, wrote stuff on the guitar, picked up the war guitar, wrote stuff on the war guitar. I even wrote the most fucked up piece on the new album, which is track three, I think. I just improvised. And then I grabbed tiny little pieces of the improvisation and like pasted it together into a piece with like no fucking tempo or anything. And then just learned it by ear. Mm -hmm. And that's what we play. And it's so it, it sounds like falling down the stairs, which I love. but it's that's actually there's like no actual pulse to that piece at all there's no metronome or there's not even like we didn't even take the time to define that's a triplet or not it's all just completely by ear so i was just like oh that's a way because basically it's like i'm interested in just making interesting i don't have any allegiance to on the instrument off the instrument notation not notation mm -hmm. i don't care i just want to make something that sounds kind of new so I realized like that was a way I could make some shit that would never sound like anything that I would decide <laughs> to write. Um, and maybe it would be a kind of a pain in the ass to learn. And it was, but I was like, all right, well, if I make it a, you know, a two minute long piece, like that'll be a good experiment. And I love the way it came out. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the other pieces I just wrote more like sitting down and, you know, like it's rock music and I write a riff and I record it and, and I just build the build the pieces and sections. And that shit still ends up sounding like Behold the Octopus and sounding crazy because now I have all this, all these years of writing this music and I know what the band sounds like and I have the kinds of things that I tend to do. Um, and, and doing things like splitting up a harmony between single notes on the bass of the war guitar, the guitar of the war guitar and the regular guitar, having us all play single note melodies, which kind of like lock into a idea more like a string trio. I kept I kept that intact, um, but that's such a vague compositional idea. That's just saying okay, everybody's playing single notes that kind of inter intertwine. It's not it's not even uh, counterpoint. It's not even that specific, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, that's that's kind of been the evolution. And, and none of the other bands I play in have I ever written anything down for. The the song I wrote for Gorgas on Colored Sands I did tab out, but that's because I was actually writing the guitar part for Luke and Kevin to play. That's the only time I've ever done that. Other times like in Dysrhythmia or Kralis that I write a song from beginning to end, I just write my part. Mm -hmm. And then Mick writes his part over my part and McMaster writes his part over my part. And we work collaboratively on drums or maybe I have some drum ideas. And, you know, small exceptions to those rules. Every now and then we might have a riff we want to play together or a riff that's harmonized and whatever. But by and large, most of that Kralos material and dysrhythmia material, we're each playing our own riff that just complements each other. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so that's it, all written on the instrument. I think Kevin tabbed stuff out, McMaster tabbed stuff out, but only their parts. Gotcha. When you, I mean, when you share these riff ideas, is it just like you record something then and like send it to Mick and he comes up with this thing? Yeah, they're all audio demos. So I okay, just record all my, that's, that's my form of notation is just using a, a, a recording program. Gotcha. So the way I write stuff is I just record each idea and then stitch it together and learn it, basically. Gotcha. Um, your, your project- which, was kind of the same, which was kind of the same way as doing the octopus stuff. I was just sitting in front of Sibelius and the guitar was over there. <laughs> but still, I would like write an idea and I would listen back to it. I'd be like, oh, that's cool, right? Like, what's the next part? And then, oh, let me reference that, that idea from the beginning of the song here and expand on it or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm still doing all those same things, whether I have the guitar or the, or the notation. The actual like process of composing music for me is completely intuitive. Gotcha. Um, mm -hmm. I rarely have like a musical concept or some kind of algorithm or anything like that in mind. It's, it's pretty rare every now and then, but um, like little hints of serialism here and there, 12 tone things here and there, but never a whole piece. No, not never a whole piece. One piece, one piece for Octopus is all 12 tone, but you know, one out of many. Um, it, so first of all, um, I think I have the pronunciation right, but is it Indrico there? I say Indricothir, but it's... <laughs> Indri Indrico... <laughs> uh, like like Indrick-O-Thir. Like in okay, Indrico Um So uh, I checked out that uh, album three, and uh, what I was sort of like struck by was, it reminded me of The Limitivist in that there was like a very tight distribution of track durations like it was i think a minute 36 to like two minutes 30 something yeah they're all they're all about two minutes and it's like i i was briefly doing this project where like i was like i'm gonna take like the grind thing as literally as possible and like really lean into like the short song so i was like every single song that i'm gonna do uh for this thing is 100 seconds long like nice. exactly and so um it was this very top-down thing where i like i had to say 100 seconds and then build it out from there and like come up with a tempo map and all that um and the fact that you know all the songs on that album are just like one two or you know, 12 13 14 whatever um it made me feel like it was maybe somewhat similar like in a top-down way of you know like i'm going to do something within the structure but then you're saying now that it's very intuitive so i'm curious how how those tracks are written. yeah dude all that shit is accidental and it's funny because i do it all the time so you have that <laughs> album where all the songs are two minutes that DSBM album I, I sent you recently, that all the songs are 20 minutes. Um, we actually had one Kralis album, uh, the, the album Yig, Yig Her, mm -hmm. where both the songs I wrote for the album and both the songs Mick wrote for the album were all exactly six minutes and 42 seconds. Hmm. And that wasn't just me, that was both of us. And that was down to the second. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've noticed... I tend to do that when I make an album, I tend to make all the songs about the same length. There's certain ones where there's a little more variety and, and every now and then I'll have one where like, I realize that's happening and on purpose, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to make a short song, but it's always like late in the game. I'm always starting everything without, without any big ideas. Um, and the, 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 the identity always just emerges as I make it. That's kind of true for almost everything I do. I, it's very rare that I like go into something knowing exactly what the vibe is going to be. I think like the closest to that is that really silly album I made at the end of last year called Movie Review, 
which is that's like my gore grind album where I was like, all right, I'm going to have an album where all the songs are like under a minute. And if they're longer than a minute, it's just because there's too many movie samples. (laughs) (laughs) But that's pretty rare. I mean, and that was kind of like, you know, almost like halfway an album and halfway like something fun I wanted to do with my friends. Gotcha. (laughs) You know, just because I miss my friends (laughs) because of the pandemic. And I just like wanted some way for us to all kind of like hang out in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Um, But usually when I'm making music, it's like, I'm just making it for the music. And and I, I just, it's, it's really rare that I come into it with, with many, many ideas other than, maybe this instrument or or that like i said with the newer stuff maybe i've been picking a subgenre every now and then but it's really rare that i will say yeah all the songs are two minutes before i make them it's more like oh all the songs are two minutes i guess that's this album gotcha um i just have a few more questions and i can uh let you uh get on with your day but uh i guess i, I i'm curious you know you record so many people at Mendegroth and like you um do so many different projects and i'm curious you know like it sounds so intuitive but uh, do you have any sort of knowledge management or like sort of like information organization concept that you follow oh you know what before we get to that just one more Mm -hmm. fun thing to talk about with that album because i uh, with the the intricate theory three album that you mentioned just because i feel like i i don't think i've ever talked about that album before i think it was just one that i i just put out and and it, it didn't get that relatively that much attention so i was i was glad that you that you got into that one um because if there was any idea behind that one it was that i think that was around when incentifrax started and that being a completely improvised brutal death metal band i was curious about this intersection of improvisation and composition and so with intricatheer the idea for the first two albums if there's any idea, was that it was like stream of consciousness composition. So it's not improvised. It is composed. But I wanted to basically like, the way I made the first and second album was like, I kind of just tried to write riffs as fast as I could and not worry about coming back to anything from before. So it was almost like if I could improvise an entire album of two guitarists, a war guitarist and a drummer, and they all somehow had this psychic link. Mm-hmm. That would be the album they would improvise. Interesting. Okay. So with three, I was like, all right, let me take this a step further. And instead of like writing riffs as fast as I can, and then they're all in a sequence and that's it. I'm going to start by improvising the left guitar. And I'll improvise for like, it tended to be two minutes. That, that, that seemed to be how long my body wanted to improvise for. So I would do that. And then with the right guitar, I attempted to go back and learn what I improvised. So all the right guitar tracks, and the thing is like the improv is so sort of sloppy mush stream of sloppy shred that the, there isn't really a what the riffs are. It's kind of just like a gesture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so, yes, you could go and you could notate it, but that wasn't really like the vibe to begin with. It was more just like, oh, this one goes up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with the right guitar, I go back and be like, okay, yeah, that one goes up here. <laughs> and I would try to sort of, as best I could follow what the left guitar was doing. And then the drums on that one are still programmed. That was before I started 
Um, now what I do is I just basically play the drums on one of these. Gotcha. But before that, I was still programming everything by hand. And um, so I got into this stuff of sometimes at the beginning of making that album, I was improvising over a click track. And sometimes I was in sync with the click and sometimes I would just ignore the click. But then after a while, I was like, what if I just have no click? So it's like around the halfway point of that album, I started writing songs with no grid, learning the improv and then programming the drums without a grid. So I was literally just moving drum samples I'd recorded by eye and lining them up with certain guitar notes. So that way I was like, oh, not only are we getting out of the compositional framework of having something be this really specific idea, instead it's like you're keying off of this gestural shit and I'm not even locked to something that's quantized. So you're not even getting something that's robotically precise anymore, or it is robot robotically precise, but there isn't any regularity. Mm -hmm. There's no pulse. So I was just like, what would that be like? <laughs> and so that's what, that's what that album ended up being. And I think that's probably why by and large, it didn't interest people as much because it's just so, <laughs> it's just so off the rails in terms of like the chaos side mm -hmm. of things. Um, but, but it is like something where it's basically like you learn someone's improvisation and then that's the song. That's like mm -hmm. the composition. I, uh, I feel like I'm so different in, uh, and I feel like you would accept this difference as totally valid, obviously, but like uh, I try to make all my sort of like non-metrical or like non-quantized sounding stuff be hyper-quantized. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like anything that sounds out of time is like uh, some sort of crazy tuplet, uh, like lattice of rhythmic nonsense. <laughs> right, right. Like the shit, the shit like, like, like Brian Fernio or something where like mm -hmm. it's so ultra- crazy nested tuplet specific mm -hmm. that it sounds like somebody like either making a mistake or improvising yeah <laughs> yeah so. no and that's the thing is that those aren't actually different things you mm -hmm. like i said earlier you could go and notate every specific tempo change and whatever in in the stuff but would would, would that really be the west the best way to represent it i don't know if you're using it as a way to compose then sure yeah if you're composing that way then it has a little bit more continuity in terms of how you think of it and, and, and it being described that way. But if I didn't compose it that way, then that's only a way to describe it. It's not anything having to do with the way it was created. So yeah, no, no, no value judgments here mm -hmm. at all. It's just, these are just different, different things, but, but um, that's why I get, I get, borderline of offended every now and then when people talk about structuralist music because structuralist music doesn't exist it's funny because often that's ascribed to behold the octopus people are like oh this is structuralist and that's just because it's it's not a, a song structure that's that you can I immediately identify that's simple mm -hmm. that's all they're really saying right so instead they say structuralist and it's just like no but the thing is nothing is structuralist because you you can analyzed any sound ever made and say this is how it began this is the middle of it and this is the end of it and that's the structure mm -hmm. so it's it's a it's a way of interpreting um a, a, a structure can be a way as an, of interpreting something just as much as it is a way of composing something. i guess that's mm -hmm. kind of what i'm, what I'm trying to say so we um, can get stuff that sounds identical 
that could be composed with the idea of micromanaging every millisecond or with not micromanaging it at all. And you can get the same sound and you can describe the sound e with either system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's like kind of like, are you doing like architecture, like design, or are you doing more like sculpture? And like one seems to be like emergent while the other, or to be respective, like uh, I guess one would be design oriented and the other one would be emergent. Uh, but but they're but, but like I'm saying, they're those are both just different ways of thinking about something that could mm -hmm. be thought about either way. Right. Yeah. There isn't really like an an identity attached to that, which is like not describable with the other system. Right. 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 Um, I forget what the thing. Yeah, there, there, there's there's a funny example of when the system doesn't explain make something seem more complicated than it really is i, I recently with kevin we were um he's doing like a, a, a notation a guitar notation book for the last disrhythmia album and there's three songs that i played guitar on the album instead of bass and so since it's a guitar book we decided it could be fun to notate my guitar parts too i i really didn't have it in me to notate all my bass parts it just takes takes so long to do that stuff that i was like all right well let's compromise we'll do the three songs i played guitar on and that's it so one of those three songs i wrote i wrote the structure i wrote the song and then like you know kevin layered a part over but for one of them i was the composer of, of it and i realized because i don't notate my my stuff like we were saying except for the old behold stuff this is something i just don't even think about but this is something i do all the time is that i will subdivide um so a passage into into triplets, right? Like, let's say I'm going along and I have 16th notes, and then I go to the triplet, the 16th note triplet. Um, I might write a riff where I'm using an odd number of those mm -hmm. triplets. So all the time I do shit where I have like five triplets or or seven triplets, mm -hmm. and you can't notate that in Western notation. It doesn't it doesn't work with that way of notating it. What you have to fucking do is a tempo change. You have to make the 16th note triplets 16th notes at a faster tempo. And uh -huh. that shit drives me nuts because not only do I find it really irritating because I just don't have that formula handy. I, every time I come to it, I'm just like, oh yeah, how do you do that math? But the thing is, it's the reason I really take issue with it is it's just not a good way of describing what's musically happening. Yeah. It's way, it makes way more fucking sense to say, yeah, you go to the speed of the triplet and you play five of them instead of six. That's mm -hmm. like something anybody can intuitively understand. But to notate it in stupid fucking Western notation, just because it's come out of these patterns of music which don't incorporate that, mm -hmm. you have to make it look this way which doesn't make any intuitive sense. So yeah. I was having to do this and, and, and why it was extra annoying with the dysrhythmia book was because Kevin wrote out the structures before I came to the table. So he wrote out the song that I wrote based off time signatures and bar lines that made sense for his guitar parts. Mm -hmm. But often he was playing stuff that was like superimposing a different rhythm over the rhythm that me and the drummer were playing. Mm -hmm. So we had to do all this stuff where I'd get to a part and I'd be like, oh, yeah, dude, I'm sorry. We gotta like totally change the way this riff is is being is barred. 
And he'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense with my guitar part. I'm like, yeah, but there's no other way to write the rhythm that I'm playing than if we change, if we change, if we make a tempo change here and put a new bar and then do it this way. Like that's the only way in Western notation this could be written. And for so many years, I've just been frustrated with some of those limitations of Western notation, um, specifically bar lines and time signatures, because I don't mm -hmm. think in terms of bar lines and time signatures when I write. Right. I think in terms of phrases and rhythmic groupings, and that's it. It's like I'm thinking of, about music in more basic terms. Gotcha. Then Western notation has, has come to accommodate the traditions of the classical period mm -hmm. of classical music. That's it. That style of music is what that form of notation came from so like the way i write music it's just the way that i came up with putting sounds together and yes yeah, some of some of that stuff it really makes sense but other times i'm like no i'm not i'm not thinking of this as changing time signatures 50 times in one minute i'm just thinking of this as like this is a grouping of three this is a grouping of four this is a grouping of two here's the pattern i wrote with that mm -hmm. that's it and it's so much easier to understand it if you just say that to somebody than if you like look at a million fucking tempo changes and right. bar lines and time signature changes. And it's like, no, the pulse of that bar is not really changing to six, eight. I just have six, eight notes. I want to stick in. Uh, so the guy that I interviewed uh, before you is this uh, guitarist, Dusan Bogdanovic, who's like a, a Serbian born, uh, you know, polymetric focused guy. Uh, love him. Great, great musician. Um, I remember i like I found the notation for his guitar sonata, something or other, and I looked at it and I saw an irrational time signature, and I was like, "Oh shit, you can do that!" And so there's a measure of you five. mean one with an odd number in the bottom? Yeah, or, uh, it says like five twelve basically, um, and so that's like he fit five triplets into that bar, but it's like it's saying it in terms of a twelfth note, and so like right now, now I can't help but think in terms of like these complicated lattices and stuff, but. Uh, I, th I thought that was interesting because, like, I'd be like, "Oh, you have to metric modulate." Uh, but um, yeah, well, but see, that's the that's that's the that's the fucking real irony of all this is that yes, of course, you can write down whatever you want, mm -hmm. and you have stuff like um, uh, like Iancu Dimitrescu with graphic notation, and even before that, you have George Crumb with mm -hmm. traditional notation, but like made into pictures right yeah yeah so the thing is yes you can you can change the rules as much as you want but what me and kevin are working with is fucking guitar pro and and sibelius and finale and these programs where they are these program representations of western notation right so yeah. with those no you can't have an irrational time signature unfortunately mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to do the stupid metric modulation for it to play back correct there's this dude that I came across on Twitter and I forget what it is. It's like Manfish or Fishman or something, but he has like some new notation program that I think he is just continually refreshing the trial version of. And mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, I don't remember what it is, but like, it, it's crazy. He has all these, like, like, I feel like it's open doors for like microtonal fiddling and like, uh, you know, all the stuff that like Sibelius won't let you do. And, uh, I've always like been annoyed by that. Cause like, you know, sure you can write it on paper, but like, uh, Sibelius at the end of the day. Sibelius doesn't want me to do more than an 11 tuplet, I don't think. Like, it's like, I, I have numbers beyond 11 to get to, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, it's software, so it, it has defined parameters. You, you, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't just give it the imagination of a human. You have, to, you have mm -hmm. to make a new version of the program when you have a new idea. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I get it. And that's why, that's 
part of the reason I, I, I've, I think, gone away from using notation programs at all because, yeah, doing this dysrhythmia book and revisiting that whole world with Kevin, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is why I hate this shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it takes so long to write down this idea that I can play in a half of a second described to you in like 30 seconds mm -hmm. and just I can just record it and play it back for you and we can make the song so much so much quicker and so that's the thing is it's like all of notation is just in service to making music mm -hmm. so some of the times for certain music it's going to be in service to that and other times maybe not maybe it's maybe it's not doesn't make the most sense here and there and and, and you know one of my favorite pieces of classical music um uh threnody um, by Penderecki mm. as just a completely new system of notation that he made up. And, and, and you, ha and he created sounds with it, which are like ingrained in the common consciousness. Now I was listening to dude yesterday for the first time ever, I was checking out the Alan Parsons project, never listened okay. to the Alan Parsons project. <laughs> and there's this orchestral shit on those early albums, which every now and then it kind of sounds like, like Ligeti or, or Penderecki that, that tone cluster shit, which I, I actually got a tattoo of some of the Threnody shit. Like ah, the, that's the nice. way he notated the, um, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, like the, uh, expansions of those microtonal moments of the, of the strings. And like, it's such a simple thing to, to think about and just to tell people to do. And, and, and there's even this really easy way, graphic way to represent it on the traditional staff. Yeah, maybe you need to put a little note about like this is what I'm telling you to do here, but that's just so cool. I mean, it, it just gets you outside of that, outside of the box, um, mm -hmm. in a way where it's kind of I don't know. I think it's kind of ridiculous we're still using this staff and these this this shit that's just set up for diatonic music. Yeah, I, I had the idea of a chromatic staff back when I was in college. I'm like, why don't we just have every line in space is a half step and we just add one more line and you could just, and, and somebody was like, Oh, well you, because you can't cover as much range on the staff. Well, it's like, that happens anyway. You have eight VB, you know, you have, yeah. you already have a symbol as part of this to say, put it up an octave or put it down an octave. Like what's yeah. the big deal? <laughs> like, why can't we just make this system of notation just a little more general, a little more yeah. open-ended, a little less specific to one kind of music. Yeah. I think that's, that that's really fair and that makes sense uh you you mentioned uh sorry in canathrak and oh in senathrak in senathrak okay um I, I guess i put the the wrong emphasis on the wrong slavely of uh, it uh it's not a real word so you can say it however the fuck you want okay <laughs> um i didn't realize that that was improvised uh but that intricate is a real word that is an actual animal yeah I, I saw i looked that up and i was like oh it's some some skeleton thing uh but the gi giant, giant hornless uh, uh, giraffe rhinoceros, basically. It's the, la the largest um, land mammal to ever exist. And it was a vegetarian. Woo! Uh, I'm, I'm so stoked that you're on the, the you know, vegan train again. Uh, but it, So it, I didn't realize that was improvised, but that makes sense because it's like, I was just like, there's no fucking way that this is like all retained. Uh, the, so the, new, the new album is not improvised. Okay. Or, or actually, it's a it's a hybrid. Okay. Um, so yeah, the the first album and the live album and the demo are all a hundred percent improvised. The vocals were overdubbed, but those were also improvised. 
Um, but for the new album, we uh, Mick was just like, yeah, what else can we do with this band? So he's like, what if we record the same way, but we delete the improvised guitars and then we write guitars over the improvised drums? So for the, the new full length, um, that's what we did. Me and Mick and Weasel played together. We killed all the improvised guitars. And then I went back and like every five seconds, I was like, okay, what's Weasel doing? All right, that's here's the riff. And I just went through and, and it took fucking forever. <laughs> um but yeah all the guitar is actually written to the drums and then mick went and wrote complimentary guitar parts to my guitar and then we added the the vocal so yeah we've had we've had and then actually the live album had all of us all four of us improvising together so we've had all these different ways of doing the band from from everybody improvising in the same room to like layered improvisation to um certain things being improvised and other things being written to the improv. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, with the, some of this uh, limitless stuff, I have basically set some of like the pitch parameters to basically be essentially just random. And it seems almost indistinguishable from the other shit that I do. And so um, Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like, there will be these weird like sort of chords that come up. I'm like, ooh, this is spicy and I'm going to take that. But um, I, I'm just sort of, like I've never heard of somebody improvising death metal as a group. And so like, uh, ha I mean, like it seems like at that point you can't be saying like, Oh yeah, we're using the same pitch materials. Like it seems like you're just going on the chaos of like, there not being any sort of like, I mean, like, are you thinking about like, you know, the note choices that you use in some sort of way that lines well, up? At yeah, all? yeah. I mean, cer certainly thinking about the note choices, definitely. But getting back to like an earlier part of our conversation about, death metal and specifically brutal death metal being like all about being chromatic and mm -hmm. and even sometimes not having tonal centricity i mean i talk about this with lilith from defeat of sanity a lot um he talks about his music being in keys and i'm like it's not it's not in a key it's chromatic as fuck but <laughs> it's tonally centric that's what he means okay, he doesn't yeah, yeah. mean it's in a diatonic key he means that this riff c is the is the boss mm -hmm. and then this riff f sharp is the boss that kind of thing. So we're we're getting in like the Senate Rack is is really inspired by the brutal death metal bands where the shit is so chaotic and off the rails that it's it's borderline noise music. Mm -hmm. um, you almost can't hear pitches. Um, so to 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 take it and then not even consciously, but just hearing like the Indonesian brutal stuff or whatever, and just, or, or a band like excoriation or whatever, like from Russia, like, you know, you, you put this music on and it's just like, you're being assaulted by snare drum, guttural vocals. And then like guitar is just this sea of like mush kind of. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's a very specific kind of mush. Um, so the idea that you could have this music where they, there it was written like, like ACDC, where you sat down with your guitar and you wrote a riff you thought was cool and you attached it to another riff you thought was cool, but you still ended up with music that sounded like that. I'm just like, oh, well, we can make that through improv too. We can actually get that same sound. Mm -hmm. um, and we can make it even more off the rails because we're not beholden to any song structure. And we can let Weasel, who's a master drum improviser, be the leader. So now we're not being led by riffs anymore. Like metal is metal's always led by riffs. Now we're led by the drums, which 
in a weird way, a lot of that music sounds like it could have been done that way. It just didn't happen to me. Um, that wasn't quite the question you asked. Oh, you were saying like, do we do we consider the notes? So yeah, so I, I, it's like we consider them in terms of, of it being just like no tonal centricity, mm -hmm. the most chromatic, the least feeling like there's any kind of thing you can grasp onto. Mm -hmm. um, just like as much turbulence as possible. Yeah, like full turbulence with none of the none of the slams. You, you never get to the to the to the breakdown. Mm -hmm. You you never get to the you get to the solo, but nothing calms down underneath the solo. The solo is just on top of whatever else is happening. The only thing that changes when the solo comes in is the vocals might stop. Gotcha. <laughs> Other than that, nothing is stopping. Um. So I, I read somewhere somewhere that uh, the first. I'm gonna keep on fucking up. And Sinathrak, and Sinathrak. Uh, uh, the first album was like at some at some point priced at like seven hundred dollars, and uh, this... yeah, it's like seven hundred and twenty-six and change or something. I can't remember. It was it was just the um, uh, my friend Ray who did the album cover charged uh, five hundred euros for the album cover. So that's just what in U.S. dollars. That's just what that equated gotcha. to. So I just liked the idea because we we had the we had the stupid idea to it was pressed on CD, but the the, the album's release would be only into the used budget metal bin at the record store that Mick worked at at Academy, um, and that would be it. So I still wanted it to be streaming online, so as a way to like not I think not realizing it, realizing at the time it was maybe a way to do it without setting a ridiculously high price. I was just like, oh well, there would be. That would be kind of amusing to set the price you're ridiculously high so no one buys it. But if someone did buy it with the single purchase of the album, I could cover the expenses of making the entire record. Mm -hmm. And of course it didn't happen. But. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that that makes me think of, and I'm not sure if you're like uh, hip to this whole conversation that's going on, but it made me think of NFTs. And I mean, like, I feel like, uh, you know, the way that you put out music is the way that I typically have. And like, uh, it's just kind of like putting it all out there. It's like, you know, why would I not want to share it? Like, I'm not going to be like, no, you don't get to listen to it because it's my music and you have to pay me for it. Like, it's like, like, that's fucking, that's stupid. And uh, at the same time, like, you know, Spotify is pretty awful. And like, I feel like it's like, I, I'm not even concerned about it being unethical or anything. It's just like, it's like, it's like garbage. Like, it's like pollution. It's like aesthetic climate it's just, change. It's just, it's just capitalism, man. It's just that evil... It's just mm -hmm. that fucking real world Satanism at work. It's not Satanism channeled into uh, music in a good way, uh, which, which is which is sold sold to all of us as as like good business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, no, no, that's not evil. That's just good business. <laughs> like, I, I feel like there's nothing that I would want more for you or anybody uh, than to like have somebody randomly pay seven hundred dollars for an album, and like that's seems to be what's happening right now with like nfts you know like non-fungible tokens um are you are you i i just heard about that shit for the first time like really recently like in the last week i think i watched a uh maybe it was like trevor noah or, or mm. somebody had a, a special on it one of the one of the like comedy late night mm -hmm. people i think was talking about it um and yeah it blew my mind um yeah just like what we ascribe monetary value to is obviously completely arbitrary <laughs> mm -hmm. um and and yeah it's 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 I, well, what, what, what was what, what were you actually curious about about that 
well, I guess like the putting you know the album out at, with a seven hundred dollar price tag um, is kind of like that. Is that what you're saying? It, it like it reminds me of like the Wu Tang thing of like putting out one copy, and yeah, it's like yeah, 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 it yeah. puts such such stakes on like you know like if somebody listens to that out to that album, it's like you have to have you know the exclusivity to get it or whatever. And like um, I was thinking about these things like like right now the whole conversation is kind of stupid, just like oh yeah, like somebody's paying sixty nine million for this like JPEG that like you know you can download for free legally and it's like oh so you just it's, it's all about just having the bragging rights it's not about the mm -hmm. it's not about the object but i think that there's like a, a lot of potential for these things to like like for instance i was thinking like you know right now we're able to have people spin these stories about like you need to have this music because it's good and it's like no you're just funneling it into our ears but like you know what if instead of having your valuation process of music be on some sort of conceived value of the final product if it was like more like a an itemized receipt of how much time and effort and labor and stuff went into it like like we're so focused well, on the that output. would be fucking hilarious because then we would see how just like less than pennies basically every musician is is making from being like a recording artist mm -hmm. um yeah i mean it's it's I, I think it's so funny because even a band like Kralis that I play in, we're like, but by my own standards, we're this incredibly successful band. We have like so many people listening to us. We sell so many albums. And in comparison to a band no one's ever heard of 20 years ago, we're selling less, but it's all relative. But my point is, I feel like we have this very large audience, but um where was i going with that it's it, it it's i can't I, I can't remember the point i was trying to make but but it, like i think yeah maybe, maybe say like say your your uh question or point again maybe it'll maybe it'll like uh refresh well uh so i actually i interviewed theo bluckman recently like the the vocalist and i asked him if you thought that like if somebody just puts in the time like if they will eventually sort of reach escape velocity like i feel like we have such a fascination with like you know just like oh yeah this album but like we don't actually know what went into it and i think that like if there was more of a focus on like oh this band literally spent a thousand hours working on this project it's like that should be rewarded like I okay like, okay that, yeah that that jogged my memory putting so, in so the time I, is important yeah totally and i think there's a, there's a couple interesting parts of this conversation so yeah so so Kralis being a band that's like sells way more copies of albums, digital and physical than Behold the Arctopus, let's say. Um, still, if you broke down, if you broke it down to like an hourly wage of how much we're all getting, mm -hmm. it's, it's absurd. It's absurdly small. It's less yeah. than a, a penny an hour for the time we spend on the music. And then even bringing it even more into focus, the album that we just released recently, um the, our kind of quarantine album we spent less time on that album than any of the others like by a factor of probably a hundred or more because demonic we wealth didn't or... demonic wealth exactly so the way that album was written was i said lev we weren't seeing each other so lev just hit record on your cell phone put it in front of the drum kit send me like two hours of drum improv like lo-fi crappy sounding cell phone mic improv and he did that, and I 
took that and edited into into songs and wrote songs over. And I wrote a song a day for eight days. And this was like the last eight days of 2020. I think the final song I wrote on New Year's Day. So, and, and, and how many hours in a day did I actually spend writing those songs? I mean, not 24, mm-hmm. maximum, let's say 10, even though it might have even been less. So, so, okay, so there's like maybe 80 hours. And then there's the time it took Mick to do the vocals. Well, and the time it took Lev to record the stuff. So that's maybe two hours of, of drum recording, maybe eight hour, 80 hours of Colin writing the songs. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, Mick did like four passes through the album. It's it, let's, a little under an hour. Let's, let's say four hours for vocals. Um, let's even stick in two more hours for the time it took him to write the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then McMaster's bass. I played bass on about 40% of the album. He did six to about 60% of the bass. Whatever. Let's just make up some number. Let's say the whole album. Let's, let's exaggerate high. Let's say the whole thing took 150 hours to write and record way less time than any of our other records where we Mm -hmm. like over the course of years got together and practiced the songs together and then eventually recorded the album over the course of a week and then spent a lot of time mixing and blah 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 okay still if you break that down it's not a job right (laughs) still not enough money to keep anybody afloat and that's like by most people's standards that's an album made in like no time Mm -hmm. Like as little time as you could spend making an album that wasn't free improv. Um, so it's just hilarious. You can go get a job at McDonald's and make more money being a mindless automaton mm-hmm. of putting like pieces of animal flesh on a grill. That pays more mm-hmm. um, than making the fastest album imaginable. But this also makes me think of that, like, I think it's Dolly where like, you know, there's a whole thing about like somebody asked for a, a like painting or a drawing on like a napkin and like he, you know, charged however much money. And it's like, oh, well, you know, it's not because of how long it took me to do this. It's like the, the cumulative uh, time that has been put in. It's like, you know, if you like were like people and like suddenly Kralis got like 69 million for demonic wealth, I feel like everybody would be like fucking about time. Like these dudes deserve it, but it wouldn't be like, you know, uh, yeah. Why? Why wouldn't somebody making? Why wouldn't somebody be making the case? Wait, you guys made this album in like two weeks. Like, fuck that. It's not worth you guys getting that much money for it. But then, what about what about the Gorguts record, which we spent like, you know, from beginning to end, like mm-hmm. five years working on. I mean, it wasn't like every second of those five years we were working on the music. But I'm just saying, like, from beginning to end, those are the boundaries mm-hmm. of how long it took, and certainly even though the music's a lot simpler, like more time was, was put into writing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like these are all questions, like, and they're not easily, the amount of time you put into something does not equal how good the work is. And it doesn't even really equal the, the value that it has to, any, to anybody in particular. That value is subjective. Mm-hmm. I so, mean, don't you, think that, uh, don't you think that demonic wealth though, like was able to be a fast process because... I mean, you each as individuals have like a huge backlog of time that you put in to like get to where you are and you as a band have like put in a bunch of time. So it's like, I feel like that transfers over. It's not like you're slacking off. Maybe, maybe, maybe maybe not, but I don't think there's anything scientific about that statement. I I made a solo album on a four track when I was 16 for a school project in a week. I played Mm -hmm. all the instruments. 
Like that was even faster than the Kraus album. And, and, and arguably it had more musical variation on it, more different kinds of instruments. Um, you know what I mean? But it's like, the, the, it's the album I made when I was a teenager and I'm not like going out of my way to be like, oh, everybody's gotta hear this, it's the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, maybe to one person, that album, they like it way more than anything Kraus has ever done. And to them, it has more value. And to somebody else, you know, so I don't know. I just feel like we're, we're, we're just floating in the sea of subjectivity right now mm -hmm. um, in, in ascribing any value to arts. I feel like art, any artistic creation simultaneously has zero value and infinite value at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I feel like I'm, I'm probably of the unpopular opinion that I don't even really quite agree in intellectual property. Mm, uh, I don't it, I don't I don't really buy that as a as a thing. <laughs> I feel like I, I always disregarded it and I recently realized just like, you know, like you know, to be the type of person that puts out non-material content that is of value, like uh, you know, it took time and effort and labor to get there. Like if you if you make a digital video game component that like, you know, like you know, like I feel like the NFT stuff is like, oh great, like I my video game character can wear this outfit that is like custom or whatever. And like, it's like, that's, you can duplicate that. It's not going to make, it's not going to cost money to duplicate it. It's just bits, but uh, you know, like to have somebody have to have cultivated a unique perspective to have executed that, like that takes so much time and effort. I feel like it's interesting to monetize that. Um, but I also agree. Like, you know, like I, I'm, so I, think, I think there's just too much, too much, too much subjectivity built in to monetize it. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I think the problem is not how do we figure out how to monetize intellectual property or, or musical compositions or something. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to figure out a better way to pay artists. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's why I'm like, I, I'm, that's why I'm excited by NFTs is because, you know, if like people are talking about it as like back pay. So like if demonic wealth suddenly made you all millionaires, like I feel like nobody would have questions about uh, whether that's reasonable. Um, cause like, it would no, be like but, I, but, but the thing is, I actually don't think that's reasonable. Mm. Personally, I think that we don't, we just shouldn't be charging for music period. And we shouldn't mm -hmm. have that as even part of the conversation. There shouldn't even be the need to back pay right. all the artists. Like, all right, I'm just going to say this. Like if we're going to have human society, like modern society with agriculture and people having specializations, mm -hmm. period then we should just all be benefiting from that by the same amount. Like mm. fucking universal income for everyone <laughs> in the world. Were you uh, on global, the Yang Gang? Global government for everyone. Like no yeah. borders, no stupid countries. No, this is my heritage. That's your heritage. Like mm -hmm. you got to fucking stop that at some point and become a global community. And we can't, we can't do that. Well, we're, well, we still hang on to this like really recent history of ourselves, mm -hmm. um, and this idea that uh, like we're we're equating a musical composition with a harvest of grain. Mm -hmm. They don't exist in the same universes to me. So, no, like musicians not as not as part of the workforce they're, they're musicians they're artists it mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't fit into the world of creating a um a 
product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I this has been a this is this is an old conversation. It's like you know, making art into a product and how problematic that is. Yeah, it's fucking problematic. I, I I don't think it makes any sense personally. I don't think there is a way to do it that fully makes sense. Sure, there's there's ways we can kind of level the playing field more for now, and 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 you can't just flip a switch and change all of human culture. So mm-hmm. the things that I'm talking about are like idealistic. It's the kind of thing that's like probably never going to happen or wouldn't happen for thousands of years, but I'm not wrong. Um, I mean, you mentioned universal basic income and I know you're in New York. Uh, do you like care for Andrew Yang or are you interested in that whole thing? I don't know much about him specifically because I'm, I'm somebody who's like, um, a apolitical or not like I, I, a better way to characterize it is allergic to politics. Mm-hmm. Um, because the second you get into any kind of politics, you're just dealing with the power struggle, and, politics and, and, and that just killer. that just put that just pollutes anything that you that you want to get done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't have any. I, I have this conversation with friends all the time, where I'm just like, yeah, you know, there shouldn't be any countries, and there shouldn't be like immigration is such a stupid conversation. Everybody should just be able mm-hmm. to go where they want. You know, Absolutely. and everyone's just like, Colin, you're being too idealistic. There's not this, this, these, these ways of thinking aren't practical. I know that. <laughs> I know that. But I can't help but not have these thoughts because I just, I look at how fundamentally fucked up all of human mm-hmm. society is. And it's really easy to identify what the problems are. And it's just hard for people to change. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard when it's not even the change of a, a personal change, when it's a societal change, then you're like multiplying how hard it is for the personal change. You're multiplying that by the number of people. And then you're multiplying that by the fucking disease that happens when you get wealth. Mm-hmm. And whenever anybody seems to get it, you start thinking differently about your relationship to other people in the world. It just mm-hmm. is a fact. At the um, same time, like, it, you know, the whole GameStop thing that happened, uh, like, I feel like at the end of the day, it's like people are getting wealthy, they're getting rich. And like, that's, I feel like that's not that interesting. But like, the idea of this, like, massive coordination effort by like the underdog to sort of like beat, you know, the, you know, current person in power, like, I feel like NFTs allow that to some extent for musicians. It's like, you know, uh, like, I feel like what if the artist, the artistry is to just figure out how to get to the, what you're talking about? like uh to figure out like maybe there's just some sort of new technology that allows us to be liberated from you know spotify and maybe it's just like nfts like i feel like to have it be focused on monetization is maybe the wrong thing but like just like there seems like an exit strategy to what you're talking about because i'm very much aligned with everything you're just saying so right and and you might be right that maybe that's like the only practical way to approach it but it's just to me i just can't i can't keep but going keep going back to the same idea that it's just like all we do is like we peel off like one percent of the military budget and give it to the artists and it's like everybody's fine <laughs> mm-hmm. done problem solved and and the, and the funny thing is it's like who who has ever lived doesn't like music mm-hmm. yeah like zero people <laughs> who who has ever lived has not been distraught by the fact that we go to war a hundred percent of people. Yeah. So it's just, it's like, it's so simple. Um, that yeah, you're right that we might have to approach it in this other way. 
and, and, and sort of stick within, you know, capitalism for the time being. And yeah, maybe there's a way to like encourage people that have more wealth to distribute it to, to us artists in a way. And maybe what you're talking about is the, is the way that makes sense to do that. You know, it's happening on a, in a really punk rock way with Bandcamp, which I love. I mm-hmm. fucking am so excited about that website. I mean, there's still a for-profit business, but that's yeah. the thing. It's like, you can still be an evil for-profit capitalist business, but just not be so awful to the artists, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the, the, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, Spotify is ridiculous because if, if it didn't have the subscription fee, it would just be radio and it mm-hmm. would be fine. It would just be this way of researching music and it would be cool. But the fact that people pay a subscription fee and the musicians still aren't getting like a sizable cut yeah. of that, that's why it's evil. Um, and with Bandcamp, it's great because you have this direct connection there and people can pay if they want. And I think what's cool is that you're not doing this. Like, I feel like somebody like Robert Fripp is kind of shooting himself in the foot by not making all the King Crimson content just available. I think he just mm. changed that. I noticed all the albums going up on YouTube just over the past couple of months. So I think he's finally getting into, into his head that the availability is more important than like guarding it and charging a high rate. Mm-hmm. so that you'll have to pay the rate if you want it at all. People are just going to ignore it. There's too much content in the world for that business model to really work effectively anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like, yeah, no. Now if you put all the King Crimson albums on YouTube, some 11-year-old kid who didn't know about the seventh remastered reissue box set that you just put out with all the bonus tracks can now hear that track. And then maybe if he realizes, oh, cool, I want to buy the thing, he that's still available to be bought, but he doesn't have to, to experience the content and he can still become a massive King Crimson fan and go to the next concert and pay the ticket fee to yeah, do yeah. that. I mean, this is all old news. We all know this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just one of those things where like, I think the idea of just inviting people with wealth to share a little bit of that with us mm-hmm. yeah. makes sense. Like in 2021, as like a way for now just to 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 be to just be like and i think people have been way more generous than ever before over the pandemic because you have a lot of musicians out there especially luckily not me but like people who make their money from live music who can't make any money right now yeah we're just up shit's creek so it's just like well look can you please pay me seven dollars for my album which really only ends up being five dollars um, you know, if enough people do that, that are into the shit, then that actually like buys me a sandwich mm-hmm. and it, and it, and it, in a real way for me, I saw that happen in last June when, uh, you know, I had all my sessions canceled, um, in March and June rolls around and I have nothing on the calendar before I started getting more like remote work coming in. And I, I really lucked out and I did this black metal album, uh, called Zazraug which people just got into enough, like way more than anything else that I put out regularly. And I made enough money just from selling MP3s to pay my rent for a whole month. And I mean, getting back to the conversation about how little money musicians make, that's laughable when you really think about it. Like Mm -hmm. a whole album, which, you know, usually takes bands years to make. I'm amazed it paid my rent for one month, Mm -hmm. one month. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's like, that's thousands of dollars. I mean, that's to me, I'm like, oh, wow, I really impressed myself. That's, that's really cool that like, I actually made that work for one month. But now the next month, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, even if I, I've been making roughly two albums a month since the pandemic started, and it hasn't been paying my, my rent every month. But once I reach this critical threshold of being able to make enough work, it's now doing something. So, you know, make more work, encourage people to donate, and you're starting to make some kind of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's better than the way things were almost in the early 2000s before the digital world had really like fully kicked in and you did still have to buy CDs, but just, you know, people without that much money couldn't have a big music collection. And so you just wouldn't hear certain shit mm-hmm. that you couldn't buy or you couldn't take from your friend. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the modern version over that any day. Cause it's just, we all just have access to the library of the entire world now of everything, any made anything ever made. I can basically just type into Google and hear it on Bandcamp or YouTube. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every recording ever made. There's very few that aren't on one of those two things. Uh, something that uh, comes to mind uh, with the NFTs as well as like a wealth thing is like I, I have no issues with people having a bunch of money or anything. But I think what would be interesting is to have like a self destruction function on money. So like basically to prevent hoarding money. And similarly, like you have you, to use it within a certain amount of time. Yeah, and like similarly with like I love with that. With an NFT, um, I feel like there's the potential to do something that's like almost in that Wu Tang, uh, you know, Shikrelli album thing, where like if you have an album self-destruct, how much more carefully is somebody going to listen to it? If the copy of it it disappears, like it's essentially like they have the potency of going to a concert because they have to pay attention; otherwise, they're losing their money. Like they're invested in a different way. You know what this is coming down to? I'm not into the idea of forcing people into a situation where they have to pay for art. Um, I think that's the wrong approach. I think we need like a new social consciousness where we all are willing to reward. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe, maybe we don't even have to get there because it it would be so easy for the government to just pay us all. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just, just to use taxes to pay everybody and then nobody's starving in the entire world. It's that simple. But (laughs) the, um, this idea of like different creative ways to assign value. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, well, that's kind of missing the point. I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we just like want to bestow and share our wealth with Mm -hmm. the people that we, um, you know, cherish as, as other artists. And isn't it also great that we don't have to do that to be able to like experience that work. Mm -hmm. Um, there's going to be certain built-in things like shows where like to enter the room, you need to pay the cover. And it's like, if you don't do that, you don't hear the thing because you're not physically in the room, but you can still stream it or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's certain situations where that's like that policing of it or that assigning of wealth is like really straightforward, but with like musical recordings, it's so not straightforward that I feel like it's kind of ridiculous to go the NFT route and be like, well, no, we've just decided that this album is worth a billion dollars, so that's what yep. it's worth. It's well, kind of like, well, yeah, but, but, but by that same logic, it's worth nothing, and everybody should be able to hear it. Uh, it something else that this makes me think of is like uh, like the smart contract world. Like, I feel like we'll eventually be able to make 
uh, like lawyers obsolete. And I'm kind of totally into that because like, like, you know, I love that. like to be a lawyer essentially means that you're like hyper optimized at playing a certain game. That's like not a great game to play in the first place. So like, if you can have you're things automated, hundred percent agreement <laughs> with you on this. So, like, it, I mean, I feel like that type of thing could be applied here. Like, uh, like I, I don't mean to imply that anybody's being forced to do anything or forced to pay anything, but like, um, like for instance, like uh, I just switched over to using the Brave browser, and basically, uh, it has this thing where it blocks pop-up ads for you, um, and you have the option to have it give you like uh, pop-up ads that then it pays you to have. And you can set it so either you receive that money or so that uh, the money you receive goes to everybody that you consumed the content of. And so, like, I've been using it for, like, a week and I've made $3. Uh, uh, But just, like, that's just from, like, being on online and clicking. Like, I don't even look at the ads. I just click out of them and I get paid for it um, in cryptocurrency. And so, like, that type of thing where it's, like, this, this, like, bottom-up sort of, like, uh, you know, more like liberated sense of money making like in terms of like more like microscopic money making that eventually amasses to something instead of like i well i mean that's how that's how banks make money right i mean that's how you make huge amounts of money is by like these tiny Mm -hmm. it's like office space remember you know how they like they wrote the program to rip off the company by just taking a fraction of a penny every time (laughs) such a good movie um that's mike judge is a prophet <laughs> um, I'm recently uh blowing through King of the Hill for the nth time but uh anyway uh, <laughs> uh we've been on the, here for 3 hours and uh, I got to make sure that this Oh wow, it's really been that long. Holy shit. Yeah, I yeah, I I've had a great time chatting with you and uh thanks so much for sharing your time but uh I yeah, got to make sure that this exports and so that you can continue your day. Um anything oh, yeah, you want to yeah. end up with or anything you want to say any place that people can check out your music? Uh yeah, so I've been uploading all my music to my YouTube channel. So that's the only place where it's kind of all in one place. Um, I have lots of different Bandcamp Bandcamp accounts, but they're not linked together on anything. I've actually just been looking looking into maybe creating a label page or something to aggregate everything, but not sure if it makes sense yet. Um, But yeah, if you want like a one-stop shop, the Colin Marston YouTube channel has everything and it has links to all the Bandcamp pages if you want to... uh, if you if you feel like paying for paying for music, you know it's mm-hmm. actually. It, I used to just write off getting paid for my music at all. I was just like, no, I'm just going to run the studio, and I never want to have to worry about making a cent off music. That's it's just too complicated to get to get involved with that. But but yeah, with the with the whole COVID thing, it's been really interesting to kind of actually try being more of a musician and less of a recording engineer and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like something I can just like flip over to and I'm not, I can't make enough doing that, but it's not looking quite as dismal as it used to be. It's those people, people buying stuff really does actually help. It's, it's made a big difference for me over this last year. So I really appreciate it. And, and all the people who really, I have to shout out the people who pay extra, who actually donate. Um mm-hmm. People who have like bought a, a digital album of mine for thirty dollars, you know, things like that. That is the equivalent part of the spirit that I wanted to go for with the seven hundred dollar incentive rack album. Was like maybe there's some rich person out there where seven hundred dollars is the equivalent of five cents, and they can just be <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, you know what? Let me help out college. <laughs> um, so yeah, part of me was just like, fingers crossed, something like mm-hmm. that would happen because there are people with with way more 
money than they need in this world. And, oh, yeah. and, and those are the kind of people who, who can just kind of be like, oh yeah, I love um, fill in the blank. I love Nick Barr. Let me just send him a hundred bucks. That's like no money to me. So to him, it's, 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 it's actually significant. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so it's, it's uh, any, any help people can give is great. But more than that, I just hope you enjoy listening. And if you don't pay for anything I've ever made, that's totally cool. You're, you have just as much right to listen to my shit. And um, I like thinking about it as not even really being mine. Mm. Um, like, I, like I was getting to earlier with not being so pro-intellectual property. Hanging on to ideas as being yours is dangerous because mm -hmm. we've all had a lot of the same ideas yeah um and people get people who get the credit for inventing something or coming up with some idea chances are somebody else had it before them and they just weren't around to get the credit yeah so that's a good i think that's a good thing to remember and um i love the idea that we have this collective consciousness that we're all really one organism and we're all contributing to this thing that's 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 music and that's art and mm -hmm. that it's like really like one of the only ways that humans have any fucking value. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Um, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I said well, one uh, of the only ways, not the only way. I'm not saying music is it. But like we're pretty awful. We're pretty awful as a species. And that's, that's like one of the few things we have going for us. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we can do is bring some vibrance into the world uh, with creativity, I guess. And 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 to acknowledge that this is something like we're all doing together. We're all working on this together. Like, you know, we don't have to get so up in arms about this metal band being the one I like and this one not being the one I like. It's like, well, you know, it's cool that you guys are all into metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are all one man. Um, well, man we're all here in the worship of metal. As Tom Araya from Slayer would say. Um, man, Slayer. Well, I, I could chat with you for hours, man. Uh, but uh, maybe you know, you're always welcome to come back on here um, and chat some more. So uh, I guess we'll end it here and uh, we'll stay in touch. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, yeah thanks so much for chatting. Uh, Cheers. Talk.